all right i miss you guys got the full 15 and 60 eastern conference coming up here been an eventful weekend we got some news which we'll get into in line with these teams but let's start from the bottom of the alphabet today with the washington wizards sitting at 19 and 26 but actually playing surprisingly well since john wall was ruled out for the season as we will get to three and two in their last five negative 3.0 net rating not great 23rd in the nba 19th ranked offense 23rd ranked defense that's actually far better than it was early in the season you call they were in the bottom five for quite some time still projecting for 38 wins which would be a tie for seventh and 56 percent chance amazingly enough of making the playoffs what have they looked like since john wall was ruled out for the season well it surprised me because that first game i think i watched a portion of it when they they lost to the chicago at in washington they lost to the bulls and it was like oh god that's the way this season is going to go and then after that they've they've done a really solid job so played pretty tough competition they had that back-to-back home and home with philly which they ended up splitting they beat the bucks that lost that crazy double overtime game to the raptors a couple days ago and then they've also basically been it's been a one game week for them because they went to london and barely beat the knicks a game that was that was bizarre like the knicks were ahead by 10 at halftime you're kind of saying they're going oh god are the wizards really going to lose that so i i i'm not totally buying the non-wall wizards yet but just like was true when he was still playing when they look good they look really really good and that is maybe enough in the eastern conference it's going to depend a little bit on on how these things break but i think they still have a shot yeah that new york game was crazy because they uh won it at the buzzer as a thomas bryan shot was goaltended to uh and they were down one at, at the time one at 101 100 it has been a home heavy schedule uh, although the game in london technically counted as a home game go asterisk handily next to it there in our sheet uh but it's been six games at home four on the road one neutral site since then and I've only played one Western Conference team, and that was that crazy win that they had at Oklahoma City. So pretty impressive, though, to have that 3.5 net rating, not including garbage time, uh, and to be fifth in defense since Wall was ruled out. I, I'm not buying that for one second, I and mean, they just don't have that personnel. Trevor Ariza's stint there has been really interesting. Now 15-game sample, 38 minutes a game, which I believe would lead the league. Maybe Harden is more over that time span, but it's pretty far up there. Shooting only 31% from downtown. He is averaging 4.5 assists per game, which is pretty remarkable. So he's been doing a little bit more playmaking. I think he certainly, you can say, has helped their defense. He is a much better perimeter defender than anyone they had before. And Otto Porter has played well coming off the bench. Arisa took his starting spot when he arrived but they've actually been sticking with Porter coming off the bench uh, even though he's been playing a fair amount yeah I mean Scott Brooks is getting into this thing which, which coaches do sometimes where they don't want to break up the balance but they do want to play their guy more and so Porter is getting the I guess that's the Miritich still so he's yeah I mean playing 30 minutes a game in each of the last four but yeah his efficiency numbers are great I mean so since the injury 16.5 points per game 57 true shooting on 23 usage and it helps when you're making 47 percent of your threes which he is and the the Wizards are getting help. You know, he's not only playing bench minutes because when you're playing 30 minutes coming off the bench, you're basically playing the rest of each half. But they have a plus 13-6 net rating in his minutes. And then the other guy that's been a real standout is Beal. I mean, this isn't a surprise. His usage is is going up, you know, thir- about 30 points a game, 32% usage, and still above average efficiency at, 30, at 56%. And yeah, he's doing a good job. The Wizards have a 112 offensive rating when Beal is on the floor since the injury. So got to be happy with this overall. 
The other than, you know, like you talked about the defensive rating, opponents making 30% of their mid-rangers is pretty damn low. That's that's just overall for the team. Yeah, opponent opponent mid-rangers against the Wizards are 30% during this injury during the span post injury. Ariza is interesting. I mentioned he has uh, those assists uh, and he's been doing a, a little bit more ball handling than in Houston when no one other than James Harden or Chris Paul is allowed to handle the ball. I guess Eric Gordon does sometimes, but Ariza actually has 18 possessions as a pick and roll ball handler and 10 post-ups and combined he's shooting seven out of 26 uh, on those plays not particularly impressive again this is a team with pretty limited options though offensively so i i'm really interested to see if this defense can keep up i mean it really you know thomas bryant has been fantastic offensively in terms of his efficient finishing also a great argument for why replacement level at center is so high and you shouldn't spend on any center who's not going to really be a main cog in your offense or defense but i, I never thought of bryant as a great defensive player markeith morris still has been out as well and porter and ariza are solid i think Sadoransky at point guard has been better they've gotten still jeff green who is uh second on the team in minutes shooting it well from downtown so i guess i'm gonna actually have to start watching more of this team again i mean they've been a team that i frankly has been my least favorite to watch in the league these last few years once they've kind of settled into being the same team 2017 they actually were exciting but then last year it was really pretty desultory but with wall out for the season it's looking like they may still be relevant they're not going to tank ted leonsis had some comments that they are never going to tank uh, essentially and while you would expect an owner to say that unless his name is mark cuban it's still pretty obvious to me uh that they're gonna go pell-mell for the playoffs doesn't seem like they're gonna lose a Ariza. so unless they go on some kind of a massive losing streak right away and again the projection systems which uh, 538 now knows that john wall is out uh, with the updates to their projection systems they've got a decent chance of being completely steamrolled in the first round of the playoffs well yeah and i mean you think about what the model is incorporating in those 10 games since john wall came out not only plus plus 3.5 net rating but i mean you look at the team they've been successful now there are some unsustainable things in their numbers but i mean considering how weak these other teams are in the mix there's certainly a chance that they get in let's turn now to toronto 35 and 13 very solid projecting now for 60 wins there is a team that is projected for 60 wins that hasn't been the case for most of the season five and one since the last 15 and 60 only a 5.6 net rating which is not unbelievable sixth ranked offense eighth ranked defense statistically they are much weaker than they were a season ago despite the fact that people are much higher on them this year and you know Lowry has missed time Kawhi has missed time they just continue to roll even without uh, Kawhi they completely housed Memphis and people are saying like oh man why isn't Kawhi playing back-to-backs like he's being such a wuss like at this rate like they're on pace for the number one seed they play these bad teams especially at home and they kill them anyway even with without Kawhi why would you ever play him on a back-to-back why don't they just go the whole season without playing him on a back-to-back like what would be the purpose of that they're not gonna play any back-to-backs in the playoffs yeah, I mean, the idea of unnecessary strain, maybe once just to just to get a feel for it, because remember, they're making a, theoretically, they're going to make a, or have the chance to make a multi-year investment in Kawhi Leonard, so maybe you want just a yeah, little the, bit on Yeah, they're going to do that whether he plays a back-to-back or not. I mean, they're not, oh, they're yeah. not gonna be like, oh, he couldn't play. Uh, he, uh, oh, we're, we're, gonna, we're only going to offer you three years, $10 million. Sorry, you, we can't, yeah. we can't, we don't know yeah. that you're going to play. So, I mean, unless it's just you're down the end of the season and it's both games of the back-to-back are like really tough opponents and you're fighting for the number one seed with Milwaukee. And I do think uh, 
you know, Boston looking like they're going to be far enough behind now that this won't be an issue. Uh, I really would want to have home court over Boston, but I think Milwaukee too. I mean, we've seen Milwaukee, for example, last year against Boston be a much better home team. I think that'll continue to be the case. Obviously, they're much more complete than they've been in years past. You wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, other than not playing the back-to-backs, uh, what Kawhi has looked like in comparison to past years. I did, and I went into it with kind of an open mind in terms of his season offensively has looked good to me and what struck me the top line numbers and there are some significant differences that we can get into but the top line numbers offensively for him are very similar to the 16-17 season when for those remember he was a, a serious MVP candidate he was somebody who was in that podcast we did when we both chose Russell Westbrook but we went through him Harden LeBron and Westbrook and offensively I, I mean almost identical true shooting very similar usage rate, similar percentage from three. It is a different mix that is creating those similar top line numbers. He is taking fewer threes and getting to the rim and the free throw line more, which is pretty interesting because you would often expect when a guy's coming back from a lower body injury that it might be the opposite, that he's shooting more threes and making them, but that that's that's not the way this is going. And so basically he's gone from 17% of his shots in the restricted area up to 24%. And now he... and That's a huge jump, by the huge way. Huge jump. To, to, to shoot. And I mean, he already got to the line pretty well. He'd be yeah. getting to the line even more, to me, is very impressive. It is, it is very impressive. And one of the reasons that might be happening, I, I was looking and comparing the, the synergy stats for Kawhi this, this year and the 16-17 season. And one of the biggest shifts, and this should not be a surprise, is transition. He is taking taking now 18.7% of his possessions in transition that is up from 12.6 as a spur the some of those are some of the most efficient shots in the game sometimes those are threes but a lot of times that's him giving to the basket getting to the foul line and that is now up to his second most frequent play type on synergy when it was fourth as a member of the spurs his spot ups are much less frequent and and his isolations are up a little bit but he is a a great isolation scorer so while you know obviously the transition jump is more important him as an isolation scorer is another way that he can be really impressive yeah i mean and for context there 1.1 points per possession in iso 86th percentile this year now keep in mind offense around the league has gone up overall but he was uh, nine or 0.94 points per possession two years ago which was 72nd percentile on those isos post up he's actually been a little bit less efficient in toronto than he was in san antonio again the old small sample size caveat supply i would say one of the bigger reasons that he's been more efficient is simply just playing in a system with more spacing i mean even though we've talked about the raptors not having a ton of great shooting around him. i mean he's still playing with serge Ibaka, who's a good mid-range shooter and is never going to be down in the post danny green is is shooting really well obviously he was in san antonio as well but clearly the system in toronto is emphasizing three-pointers more he never had a three-point shooter like cal lowry at the point guard or even fred van vliet at the point guard you know, he was dealing with tony parker in that 16 17 season rookie Dejounte murray was getting a, a little bit of time did have patty mills but mills was on the second unit didn't play with Kawhi as much so i think that's part of why he's been able to get to the basket more number one as you mentioned is the transition they run a lot more than that grizzled san antonio team you don't have lamarcus aldridge down there in the post you know pagasol down there in the post or at least just at the elbow so i i think while i'm not gonna say that he's a better player than he was two years ago 
clearly the numbers would support that argument at least often i think defensively clearly that's where you might say additional age maybe slowing down a, a little bit and also the injury you know how much those things go into play when a guy misses a full year it's hard to say whether it's aging or injury or what but you know i don't think certainly on a game-to-game basis he has been the same level of player i think he's also played more minutes in the games that he has been available and so maybe that has led to more fatigue within those games whereas in san antonio uh, they limited his minutes a a little bit more as i recall so uh, anything else you want to talk about with these guys before we move on no, I think that's it. I mean, we'll we'll have to keep an eye on the defensive stuff. I mean, PIPM has him actually as a slight negative now. He was at a slight positive. I don't know if there's if something that went in over the last couple of days that really shifted that. But we'll we'll keep it we'll keep an eye on it. And Kawhi, I, the one other point that I want to make is that you do see those flashes from him defensively. He had a couple of ridiculous deals in there, lost to the Celtics. He's had some of those great possessions at various points. It's just that his sustained possession by possession monstrousness hasn't been there this year when that was really hit to me other than his shocking individual scoring that was uh, Kawhi's calling card in 1617 and forgive me if I've said this before but I think he also has just had a few more little lapses mm-hmm. getting back cut etc oh yeah that's right because I made the joke that Brig Popovich would have uh, benched him for a quarter if that happened all right we got lots to talk about with Philly their matchup with Oklahoma City we're doing the NBA cast for them as well tomorrow against Houston that should be a very very interesting game with two teams with totally different styles but I want to talk to you about Smile Direct Club first. I am actually a veteran of Smile Direct Club. I was a total moron. My parents forked over for braces back when you actually had to have like real metal braces as a teenager. And I always wore my top retainer and I just didn't really care that much about my bottom teeth and my bottom teeth never solidified. And so my bottom teeth have been kind of messed up for a while. And with my wedding coming up, I was really happy to be introduced to them. Took about seven months to align my teeth. You have to wear they're invisible aligners 22 hours a day basically you leave them in except when you're eating but they really are not very noticeable at all like no one ever was like oh hey you have that in i never noticed it at all even my wife like didn't really see it and it worked great it was so much better than braces like i remember when i would get braces i went to the dentist they would like tighten down these wires and then i just like couldn't eat for three days they gave me this stupid like plastic teething ring to that by biting down it was supposed to relieve the pain somehow it did absolutely nothing and so the invisible liners just work better but this is far far less expensive uh, than getting the service uh, at a bricks and mortar dentist with smile direct club you can straighten your teeth with invisible liners that are sent directly to you for only 80 dollars a month so no braces no monthly office visits no paying a fortune they work gently and discreetly to gradually guide your teeth into alignment like i said i never had any trouble like chewing or anything every week or two you would put in a new aligner and there really would be almost no discomfort when you put in a new one and then that would go away within like a day so they have 200 plus duly licensed doctors that can oversee your plan every step of the way and you can go to smile direct club and take a look at before and after photos of more than 350,000 satisfied grins and i am among those i think my bottom teeth look great now so the way to get started with them you can offer a free impression kit with rebate or you can schedule a free 3d scan at one of their smile shops as well they have an exclusive offer for our listeners get 150 dollars off your invisible liners at smiledirectclub.com slash podcasts and then use the offer code bball150 so different code this time bball150 
for $150 off your invisible liners. Once again, $150 off at smiledirectclub.com slash podcast and then enter the offer code bball150 and let them know that bball150 code that you came from us. Oh man, what a game that was. Philly at home against Oklahoma City. I want to talk a little bit about just the end of the game first and this may get into a little bit of oklahoma city stuff but so be it i think it's really interesting uh philly is down one russell westbrook for some reason just rushed a, a horrible three and stephen adams who's monstrous all the game gets it to terrence ferguson on the offensive rebound puts okc up ferguson had not hit anything all game and then he makes that one puts him up four and uh then i thought that philly managed things pretty well with a little bit of help from uh, oklahoma city mistake yeah i so the play they ran down four with about a minute to go was basically a clear out and then they got jimmy butler the ball with jeremy grant on him and butler just moved grant on in kind of an iso got close to the basket got an and one and i mean butler's a strong dupe like that but, but it is kind of reminder that while jeremy grant is a wonderful team defender he's not that kind of like you know just throw him on the guy and have him envelop the star type of player i love him but he's just not he's not that guy at least not yet so that with the end one puts okc only up one and they have the ball um i wanted to add something on that point sure. too i thought it was a really nice design they brought butler along the baseline i want to say it was ben simmons inbounding it and then they had two guys stationed up near the top of the key and then reddick seemingly poised to come off a screen to the ball from the opposite wing and so reddick's gravity froze like all three of those guys because those two guys had to be there in case the screen was set to help out quickly on reddick and so they threw it into butler butler who was pretty much totally stymied all game uh before the last few minutes because i I thought grant did a great job and he's really tough matchup for him because those guys he can't outstrength them and he can't really out athlete them although he did beat grant on that play but everyone is stuck up at the top of the key. Even when Butler gets the ball and starts driving, no one ever got down to help, and he just went in for a layup without anyone helping. That's the power uh, that J.J. Redick has uh, as an offensive player, I thought. And, and they did a great job taking advantage of that to get that quick hitter, uh, which they needed in that situation. So then the next trip down the floor, I don't remember the exact circumstances on this foul. Of course, I remember the next one. Yeah, I, I think it was, just a, it was just a take foul. Just a take say. foul. Yeah. yeah, so Jimmy fouls Paul George. Hey, Paul George got to touch the ball. Isn't that nice? And so it was 113, 110 after Paul George made both free throws. And then the the I thought that the Thunder overall did a pretty good job on the possession. Joel Embiid was spaced out above the break for a three. Adams was, I thought he was close enough to really affect the shot. Russell Westbrook bit too hard on it, was already past Joel Embiid and tries to reach on him anyway. It, it looked like he was trying to follow him to like prevent him from getting the three off like an intentional foul but it was he was well into the shooting motion like okc was arguing that it, it wasn't a shooting foul but it clearly was oh it mind. absolutely was and that was russell westbrook's sixth foul so westbrook is out of the game Embiid makes all three so now the and remember this is a it was a three point it was a three point game and so now that tied it with 14 seconds to go well and clutch free throws from Embiid there so Dennis Schroeder is in now OKC I think they had a timeout but I they did it made sense not to use it and in fact by not using it they were able to set up the play after they screwed up and turned it over but I loved the strategy 
from Brett Brown. Number one with the backup point guard. Number two to trap in the backcourt. You know that with a tie game, they're going to try and run the time down. So they're going to be loath to attack, in theory, the trap that's making you vulnerable, uh, like you would normally in a, in a full court press. You know, there's no way that like a press breaker has been discussed uh, after after the free throws. That's the last thing on anybody's mind. So it was perfect. And Schroeder just got trapped. Probably should have taken the timeout at that point rather than just throw this absolute lazy pass. Steven Adams did not come to the ball and Butler just broke on it like a safety. Uh, I thought maybe even got fouled by Schroeder, did a nice Euro step, laid it in, Philly it goes up too. And then uh, OKC did in fact have to take their timeout. Well, and that, that gets into an interesting thing that you and I discussed off air right as it happened about I was just trying to figure out the math on this because Jimmy Butler steals the ball. Let's say when he stole it, there was about you know, 12 seconds left once he really controlled it. Oh no, it was probably even less than that, probably around 10. Yeah. And and he, so he's driving in. He has a pretty clean look at a layup. I agree with you. I, th- I think I would have called the foul if it had been me. It was borderline to be sure, but I would have edged towards it being a foul. And so what I was what I was kind of asking, and I don't know that I have an answer on this, is wh- what does the math say? Because you are, if you hold the ball, then you are guaranteeing that you don't lose in regulation, but you're getting a lower percentage shot, uh, likely a materially lower percentage than a pretty clean look at the basket and possibly a foul call. The part that goes the other way is there's the possibility that you that you you give the other team the ball back and they have a timeout to advance the ball so it's not quite the same as oh they have to throw it from their own their own basket or something like that it's it this is as basically as strong of a you know as far as the math goes in one direction because you have this really high percentage chance but i found it very interesting yeah i mean and i know that you know this but obviously when you make that interception it's unrealistic oh yeah of course yeah yeah that's that just like pull it back oh yeah there's you no one's ever going to expect him to do that i it just got me thinking about the question of you know like in a in a vacuum you know in that in that non you know in that non-realistic circumstance just where does it go it's you know it's not quite the same as the like two-point conversion decisions in the NFL but it's just good to think about where where the where the value lines and I think that's a pretty close call but in real life you're of course right that that Jimmy Butler or whoever else is going to go for the basket and they'll likely win yeah I mean I think it is a likely win I mean he what did they have five seconds left after he scored so granted you can advance the ball but still your chances of getting a bucket with five seconds left are much lower than if you have more time than that and you're just able to run a normal possession so i think especially when you've got uh and a pretty good chance and then there's also the chance that they just score it too i mean i that's probably a 75 80 percent shot for jimmy butler going at dennis shooter like that so and then there's the chance of getting fouled as well etc there's a really good chance of an offensive rebound if you miss I mean, it was a two on one. So, uh, I'm, well, and, uh, and in this, in this circumstance, he could have been pretty confident that if the, he didn't make the layup, they would have called the foul. Like as much as I hate that call, that's probably what would have happened. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but you were not impressed with Philly's defense uh, on the game winner by George. I was not. And with Russell Westbrook out of the game and you're ahead by two points, Paul George is the focal point here. Now you obviously don't want to give up like a layup at the basket, alley-oop to, to Grant or to Stephen Adams or something like that. But what happened was Adams screened for Paul George coming, coming back towards the, the top of the key and 
Adams got a really nice screen on Jimmy Butler. And so my, I had two criticisms. One was, I think they should have been shading more attention Paul George's way. Anyway, he's the, he's their best player. He is, is the best shooter that was on the floor because, you know, Abrinas, Abrinas is out for personal reasons. And I was going to say Russell Westbrook, but he's obviously way better than Russell Westbrook. So Paul George, you have to sit there and go that. But then the other part of this is you have to treat Paul George being open as a crisis situation. And so I thought that Embiid didn't, didn't really freak out enough there. And they could have brought help from somebody like Ben Simmons because once the ball, especially once the ball gets into Paul George, then if you force him to make a pass, you force him to do something else. A, that's even if it's a cleaner look, it's a worse basketball player. But you also, that takes time to make that decision. Maybe there's a mistake there. And I think overall it, it, wor- it would work out better. Instead, what happened was Jimmy Butler, amazing competitor that he is, tries like hell to get back in the play and trying as hard as he did to get back in the play. George is pulling up and he basically jumps into Paul George. It was an unambiguous foul to me. And yeah. Paul George made the shot anyway. So not only do you, do they make the three, so then it's already a deficit. He makes the four point play. So now Oklahoma City is up two with, I think they had like four seconds left. Well, this is taking a really long time <laughs> to, to discuss this. But yeah, and then, I mean, I agree. It's a tough decision there. Their lack of any kind of defensive personnel that they can bring in outside of their service. I mean, you could say, all right, we'll take a beat off the floor. We're going to switch everything. All right, well, you've got three guys who could do that. I mean, you don't want TJ McConnell out there. He probably doesn't have the size if you wanted to bring him in. You know, I mean, Muscala, Jordan Bolden, you're not going to trust him in that situation. But yeah, if you have a beat out there, now switching becomes more difficult when you have a great screen setter like Adams. And Embiid surely, you know, didn't want to step out and, and just give Adams a wide open layup on the inbounds either. So, I mean, it's that's why I think most teams just switch everything in that situation is you just don't want to give up a pretty good opening for a three. You don't want to get, let someone get open right away. Your biggest danger is someone getting open right away off the inbounds the way George did. You want to make him make a catch and then with very limited time make a move to beat you and you can always help that guy who might be switched into a mismatch once the catch is made it's much harder to help uh if you're not switching so it'd be nice to be able to do that i'm just not sure they had the personnel to taking joel and beat off the floor in that situation probably wouldn't have sat well with him either so i'm not sure that there was necessarily a, a better <laughs> option you know other than to say hey ben simmons you you are gonna back off a little bit I mean, I, th- I think maybe that's what you say there is that if we're going to play this defense, we're not going to worry about pressuring the inbounder as much. And then, you know, if someone does get wide open, Ben Simmons, you can like go sprint to him and we'll we'll deal with the, the guy who's making the inbound pass. And and obviously, I think there is something to be said for it's clearly going to Paul George. Um, I want to talk oh, a little bit. Yeah, go I ahead. I want to say one quick thing. I, I I was struck a couple of times during this game when I was watching the Thunder being like, oh, yeah, it'd be really nice if they if if OK, if philly still had new orleans and well and like oh yeah it'd be a really nice thing if they still had jeremy grant like those moves were not well i mean i have some criticism with the way the noel thing was handled but it's it's not like oh that was a huge mistake by them because of the the compensation they got but those are players that would fit so well with what philly needs right now uh i'm actually not sure about that because those guys can't shoot at all and they can't have anybody else who can't shoot on this team well nerlens as a backup center would be a way better answer than all the guys that's that true been that, yeah I, that i would agree with um so they're in the midst of the streak now they blew out indiana on tnt they're playing 12 straight games against teams that currently are over 500 they're now one and one during that stretch houston which we're doing the nba cast for tomorrow is the next of those and i think like either nine or ten of those games are on national tv 
a few other notes here uh, Joel Embiid is dealing with this back injury I think that's been most noticeable on defense where he is just not moving as well I mean I thought like Steven Adams was like posting him up with quick spin moves and scoring he's not really rebounding as well he's not going after loose balls he's definitely not going to do anything on the offensive glass like letting guys go in and not really jumping you know pulling the DeAndre Jordan you know so he definitely has been limited with this back injury um you recall that it was uh, the back injury initially that caused so much consternation at Kansas uh, until then he ended up breaking the navicular bone but and I think even his back is one of the things that is uh triggers his nine guarantees although he's basically almost sure to get that at at this point to to get his full max contract guaranteed but you know they're I mean I guess they're fighting for the three seed here and Embiid he really wants to play he hasn't played very much but I don't this doesn't seem like it's gonna just get better by playing you know so we'll see if this keeps up I mean maybe they'll just think he can tough it out through the all-star break and then he'll recover uh during that um a couple other things to talk about uh, on, in this game still just struck by how limited their personnel is i mean jonah bolden has done some nice things i mean he had added some athleticism he's playing a little more backup center as well as some of these units uh, instead of muscala did hit a nice pick and pop three although I'm, i don't think he's a reliable option from there i mean they had a lineup with him mcconnell and ben simmons and that that unit comes in seven minutes into the game when you're still going against the other team's starters i mean that's just it's really tough with that group uh they also just can't guard anyone on the perimeter uh, dennis shooter scored 11 straight points just blowing by guys basically uh, they couldn't deal with that they also run a lot of sets where i don't know if this is intentional or not but they just have two guys standing like literally could hold hands with each other in the corner and that doesn't really seem to work very well when you're doing stuff on the opposite side and then you try to run a side pick and roll on the other opposite side the guy rolls to the basket you throw the pass and yeah you pretty much can help without penalty when there's two guys standing right next to each other that can be guarded with one guy the other guy can just go in and help and, and they uh cause an interception in that exact scenario and i think that's uh all i got here there's probably enough on philly do you want to just go through their fundamentals quickly before we uh, move on to orlando yeah so philly is 30 and 17 four and three since last time we did this ninth in net rating ninth in offense 11th in defense projected to be tied for third with 52 wins and they're making the playoffs i'll just go straight into the orlando fundamentals since i'm already there well, real quickly actually sure. do you do you find that the three seed would be any particular advantage over the two seed i, I mean i guess they would feel like they match up a little better with milwaukee than toronto although we don't know which of those teams is going to be the one seed well, well so the three versus the two not particularly i mean home court certainly helps we don't really know well, i mean the, the, i don't think i think but I'm you sure as hell like, want the three over the four or the five. Like, that's where the well, real the real well, no, no, is. No, I mean, I, I don't think that the three seed is that much of an advantage over the four seed. Well, then you, if well, you have to face, there are five, there are five good teams to me. Like, there are five, there are five very strong yeah, teams. Yeah, oh, that, that's what it is. Yeah, it's your first round matchup. Right. That's, that's your big deal. That's yeah, the huge okay, difference. That, that's Two and three point. doesn't make a big difference, but, but four and five does, because you're facing yeah. one of these other teams. Yeah, I don't think it makes a huge difference in terms of your second round opponent, necessarily. No, probably not. I mean, it's still, I, I think there's certain teams like that philly shouldn't want to face and certain teams that they could yeah. just they like, probably think they match up better with milwaukee than toronto toronto has uh has really housed them uh when they've been at full strength all right so yeah let's move to orlando now sorry that's that just no that's it that's a good it's a, it's a worthwhile point the magic 19 and 27 on the season two and four since the last 15 and 60 their negative four net rating puts them 25th in the nba 25th in offense 17th in defense which is a pretty 
dramatic improvement from last year. 538 projects them to win 33 games, which would be 11th in the Eastern Conference, and gives them a 12% chance of making the playoffs, which has bounced around a lot with them over the last little bit because the bottom of the East is so tight. And one thing that's a factor here is that Aaron Gordon, due to a sore lower back, he missed Saturday's game. He's questionable for Monday. So they they can try different things in his stead, but they, they don't really have the reason Aaron Gordon and Jonathan Isaac play together is because they don't really have a lot of other forwards. Jonathan Simmons has been starting there and Simmons isn't, you know, he, he doesn't solve the problems that this team has. And I think the the main thing that you want to talk about here is somebody that you and I are both high on, Jonathan Isaac. Yeah, high on is a somewhat relative at this point. I mean, True. I was hoping for more for him offensively. I mean, he is a very dependent player. 37% of his offense comes from spotting up where he has not been effective. I mean, 15% usage, 51% true shooting. He is 25th percentile on spot up plays, which can include some drives to the basket, but mostly is just a catch and shoot jump shot. Transition even, he has not been great either. That probably also includes some catch and shoot jump shots. And his finishing around the basket, it hasn't been amazing uh he's a better two-foot jumper than a one-foot jumper but i'm uh you know he's not really strength is an issue but he's not incredibly explosive at the rim i mean he's really much better defensively in terms of being an athlete than offensively we saw in summer league him trying to operate from the mid post on post-ups he's only done 12 of those all year only scored six points on those 12 a little bit better on isos and again the line between isos and post-ups it can be a thin one of you know are you catching the ball with your back to goal 20 feet from the room or 15 sometimes turning and facing or backing down whatever so the iso numbers are a little bit better he does have the ability to rise up over smaller defenders but I'm pretty much going to say at this point that the ship has sailed as far as him being, you know, certainly a top two offensive player. I mean, I'm not going to say it can never happen, but I'm writing that off until we see just massive progress from him at this point. And so if you're looking at this team now, the two guys they drafted number six back to back, Bamba and Isaac Bamba, it's been a struggle for him offensively this year as well. And so if you're going to build around those two guys, you might say, hey, we're going to have a monster defense. Like, that's what we're going to build around. And, you know, maybe we'll try to find some offense with some Lou Williams or Isaiah Thomas, you know, instant offense type of guys. And that's how we're going to build our team. But I mean, Lowe was talking about this uh, on his pod this week that it's just, what are you going to do? I mean, are you, you try to make the playoffs. Are you going to build around these guys? They're clearly, I mean, neither of these guys even is necessarily even an NBA starter yet, not to mention being a foundational piece. So if you're going to build around these guys and you're not going to get a great draft pick this year to add to that group, and you're you're looking at being bad for like two, three, four more years even. But I still don't know what the other path is necessarily here either. The treadmill of mediocrity is a really tough place to be, but it's also tough to get out of because the the mechanisms here, especially because this is not a particularly asset-rich team. There might be somebody that's interested in Jonathan Isaac. There might be somebody that's interested in Mo Bamba or Aaron Gordon, but they're not this like transformational thing and they're not bad enough to get those real, maybe maybe with lottery reform, I've always thought it would be really funny if the Magic ended up winning the lottery or something close to that because the Magic winning the lottery twice in rows what led to the old system. And we've a lot of the people in the brass have kind of forgotten about that. But I think you're onto something with Isaac and Bamba, those guys together. And, you know, maybe Aaron Gordon can help grease those skids just because you can play him with those guys, you know, with one of those two, I think. But my big issue with Bamba, or sorry, not with Bamba, with Isaac, 
offensively is that really his skill set is closest to a low usage center. Like that that's really, he doesn't have a great jump shot. I don't think he's going to have a great jump shot. He's not a, a, a dynamic post-up player. And if you have that type of guy who's not, you know, really great at anything offensively, hopefully at center, he could run the floor a little bit better than his brethren. Then you, if you're playing him at the five, you can deal with that. Lots of teams do. But if you're playing him at the four, even with somebody like Vooch, who is a, a dynamic, he's been an amazing offensive center this, this year, there are a lot of limitations that kind of cascade on the rest of your team. And it's very possible that Isaac isn't good enough as a center to justify really throwing a ton at, well, at pieces and i think he him. can't he can't fulfill the offensive responsibilities of a center either i mean he, he's not a powerful enough finisher and he's not a great screener at least not from what i've seen and that's something else that <laughs> centers need to be able to do in in this league i mean that they can create opportunities for their guards and i mean granted the magic don't have great guards there and so with isaac there, I was kind of thinking about him in terms of like the second draft ideal because we he's only played 60 possessions at center this season. They have other guys that they want to try and Vooch is obviously way, way better. Then maybe you could see a team selling themselves on Isaac as a second draft guy, but there's a possibility that he's just not good at that. And so then, then what is he? And and he's certainly an intriguing, talented defensive player. That's why I was so fascinated by him as a draft prospect. But it's it's hard, you know. He's going to have to be so great at the things that he's good at to to make it work. And so I I'm I'm losing steam on him, though there is still absolutely plenty of hope. Yeah, I mean, if he starts making his shot, and I, you know, he does have some natural touch, but that twenty eight percent on threes is ugly, and not a ton of attempts, only one hundred and three. If he just starts making his shot, then I think everything falls into place for him. He becomes a tremendously valuable player. He is there, I think, uh, as a kind of switchblade defensive ace uh, already. I mean, he's got to get stronger, but I think he's, you know, the the feet have developed. He can make plays on the ball. Uh, he does compete on the glass they haven't really spent a ton of time with him at center i mean you, you've talked about that uh, gordon and isaac have basically played with a big on the floor now if that's vucevic i think that's you know that's probably gonna look better offensively than if those vucevic is off the floor and those two are the the four and the five bomba and isaac have not been able to stop anybody together in uh 383 possessions together and you know of course they're absolutely miserable offensively so yeah i, I don't know the the magic i mean they're probably i mean i i I hope they do. I I haven't done all my work yet on the All-Stars. I think we're going to do that tomorrow, but it'd be hard for me to believe that Vooch isn't going to be in there with some of the pretty low competition in the Eastern Conference. Let's turn to New York. Wait, can I bring up one yeah. more oh, thing? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So I do want to mention that Gordon and Isaac as a pairing have a positive, the Magic have a positive net rating in their minutes, which is pretty shocking when you consider that this team is below 500 and you know that they're starting yeah. typically 40 and best DJ net rating in the league. I mean, yeah, so, and, and a lot of that is they've been playing with Vooch, Vooch has been awesome and their, their defense has been pretty strong in those minutes and then the other thing is because Vooch is a way better offensive player Isaac is basically not involved in their offense he only has 37 screen assists on the season and only 10 possessions as the role man in pick and roll or pick and pop which is just incredibly low for a guy who starts and plays you know has played a thousand minutes this season and he has two points on those 10 possessions yeah that's not great either 
Not great. Speaking uh, of not great, yeah, the New York Knickerbockers, they are 10 and 34, 0 and 4 since last 1560. They've also had that kind of weak one game week with the time in London. Their negative 9.2 net rating is 27th in the league, 26th in offense, 29th in defense. 538 projects them to win 20 games, which would be 13th in the West, and that would be the third worst 13th record. In, 13th in the East. Sir, 13th in the East. It'd that's, be, inc- it'd be, that's incredible. It would I be mean, like 16th in the West. <laughs> I mean that that's incredible that the East might have three teams with twenty or fewer wins. I thought, and this is the year that we're supposed to not have teams tanking to like get the number one seed in the lottery anymore. I mean they're I don't they're just bad. Teams, yeah, I mean these teams aren't even really tanking that hard at this point. No, they aren't, and and so they're not going to make playoffs. Obviously, one one good piece of news for the Knicks that we can start with is that Mitchell Robinson is finally back. He had that for those who remember he had a sprained ankle, and while he was recovering from the sprained ankle, he had a great issue so he missed 13 games basically a month of the season and now we're starting to get you know we're a couple weeks from the trade deadline we're starting to get rumors and one of the interesting ones involves frank nokina possibly going to the suns and we'll start with this basic point that i think nokina is a very compelling fit next to devin booker we still don't know exactly how good he can be as an on-ball player because it hasn't been that huge a part of his role with the Knicks. You know, it depends on on the situation. But defensively, I think he can defend both guard positions, and that could be good for Devin Booker, who doesn't defend either guard position. So maybe that that part of it could work. And if Booker, he's been so good, you know, as as the primary creator for them, I don't think Frank is necessarily your only answer. But having him in the mix would be good there. The challenge is figuring out a reasonable price because. How do you weight potential production and, you know, expected value versus ceiling? Well, the theory of him is great next to Booker. And when he was drafted, I think we both liked him as kind of a George Hill. He's not even close to being that level of shooter yet. I mean, even on just catch and shoots, 31% from three. He's seven out of 26 on off the dribble threes. That's down in the 20s. He makes $4.9 million next summer as well, which given their tax or not tax concerns, but their need, especially with the, they're going to have a very high draft pick that's going to take up a lot of salary cap room. Like he could even just be a straight up salary dump candidate. And, you know, Jared Dubin has made the point that Nilakina didn't play enough minutes with Porzingis last year. And Porzingis certainly would help any, any point guard, but, and that now he hasn't played that many minutes with Knox and, I don't think that it matters as much that he's not playing as many minutes with Knox because th- those guys don't really complement each other particularly well the way, you know, Anilakina and Porzingis would. But, I mean, this all goes back to how the organization sees him. We have to remember the story behind him, which was that Phil Jackson drafted him number eight and then was unceremoniously ousted like a week later. And so this regime has absolutely no sunk costs with Nilakina. They, I mean, they probably are of a mind that Alonzo Trier is a bigger part of the future of the Knicks right now than Nilakina is, although Trier has really dropped off. I think he's, since he returned from that hamstring, he's at 32% from the field and 25% from three over a nine game stretch. But you know, I mean, they're not prioritizing his development as you might with another lottery pick. And I think, you know, while he is a solid defender and has shown a little passing vision, I mean, he's really far away. Now, he was super young when he was drafted, but he's definitely looking like a second draft guy at this point. So let's say to the Suns or anyone else, I mean, considering that salary that he has for next year, but also extremely young, you know, he's only 18 still when he was drafted. What kind of a price are we talking about to move Frank? Well, yeah, not only what type of price is it going to take to move him, but what are the Knicks willing to accept? Because even if they're not high on him, there are those circumstances. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. What, what would they be willing to accept? That's what I'm saying. So 
I think if they got offered, and I'm not saying I would, if they got offered a late lottery pick or even maybe like that 16 to 14 to 18, 19 range, I think they would, I think they would jump on that. Also, and this is really unfortunate for the Suns with how they, how they've handled this season. If the, if somebody could take on some of their salary for next year, I think that would be another sweetener. Even if we don't see like, let's say Courtney Lee as a huge negative, a team like theoretically they could have traded back Tyson Chandler or they could have done something with Austin Rivers. There are a bunch of these types of deals that the Suns in particular could have made to, you know, be a slight sweetener. So the problem with Phoenix is like, I don't think the Bucks pick they have is enough. That's going to be, you know, we expect that to be in the 20s pretty confidently, not even this season, but next season. So maybe that and some salary relief, like some serious salary relief could do it. But even then, the Knicks might be saying they're going, oh, somebody's going to want Tim Hardaway Jr. or something like that. And you know what, though? I think any first rounder I would be ecstatic to get right now. You would be, but do you think the Knicks would be? Yeah, they don't they don't value him at all anymore. Interesting. I, 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 mean, just, I, I that, just that feel like they won't sell low. I, I understand what you're saying. My just just as kind of a well, CYA consider, type thing. When you consider get yeah, I mean, but that wasn't I mean, it's not on those guys who drafted him, right? I mean, if they drafted him, then yeah, I think there would be a little bit more CYA involved. But yeah, I mean, if I could get that Bucks pick, sure, I would do that, even if the Bucks are looking pretty formidable. And it's looking like that's going to be, you know, a pick that's in the 20s next year. Yeah, I think I would do that. And you get off of the money as well. I mean, if he just plays like this the rest of the year, like that's a negative value contract. Like, I don't know if anyone, I mean, is even necessarily going to want to just take him. I, I think we've seen that with the salaries for these picks going up now, starting with the 2017 draft, that teams are kind of giving up on these guys really and early. I mean, if you look at like Hazonia or Bender, now granted those guys were third year guys, but and we've seen teams just decide, hey, you know, these guys are not worth the, the salaries. And yeah, I would be totally happy to get off of that and maybe if you could package him with lee as well to the suns lee could maybe help the suns he, he hasn't really been playing much uh, after coming back from that neck injury so i i would be surprised if phoenix were interested in him at this point in time this will be the, he's in his mid or not mid 30s but well into his early 30s now so that would be what 32 or 33 i could actually look up what ag is instead of just obfuscating um i think that's about all i've got on this one though unless you want to add something no i think that's i think that's enough we can jump to the Milwaukee Bucks, the Bucks are now 33 and 12, 5 and 1 since last time we covered them. Number 1 in the league in net rating, number 2 in offense, number 4 in defense. 538 projects them to win 59 games, one behind Toronto, which would put them in second place. And I said 5 and 1 in the last 15 in the last since last 1560. They're 12 and 3 over the last 15 and have a plus 12 net rating, which is ridiculous. Yeah, that's the the highest in the league. I mean, they, especially when they go against bad teams, they just completely destroy them. And like this, they're just chugging right along here. I mean, statistically, we talked about the Raptors only a 5.6 net rating. And Milwaukee's schedule going forward isn't really that much harder than the Raptors. And I mean, statistically, there is no argument. Like they've been easily the best team in the NBA. Maybe if you want to compare Golden State's performance with Steph Curry in the lineup, you could say make a statistical argument for them at this point but I mean, this team is really really good and and you might say there's not as much star power here not as much defensive uh, versatility that their system could maybe be exploited that bud uh, for all of his regular season brilliance is a little unproven as a playoff coach so is nick nurse but nonetheless 
These guys are still not the favorites in the East to you, though. You, you still got Toronto, you'd say? Yeah, I, I think I would still have Toronto, but it is becoming a closer call for me because the Bucks have been the better team. They've also been healthier, I think, overall, which is which is worth mentioning. But I think it just when you when you think about how their minutes are going to adjust and how they're going to scale, I, I think that helps the Raptors more, especially if the defensive, you know, the, the flashes we see from Kawhi just become more frequent. He in particular, yeah. and having Danny Green there too, like two guys that I, can Really. I think Kawhi is better than Giannis. I think that's my biggest thing. I think Kawhi is more difficult to stop than Giannis. Giannis, for all of his brilliance, is still pretty much a, a one-trick pony. It's it's a damn good trick, but yeah. Oh yeah, it is. And, and I mean, you know, that, and that's oversimplifying it, obviously. But sure. to attack the basket and then pass it to somebody if he gets uh, guys in front of him. But you know, there when you know that he's there's only one thing he's going to do. Yeah, he's amazing at it, and and he's very difficult to stop. But still, even at the end of games, I think it's telling that a lot of times they don't necessarily go to him. Whereas, I, and then I, I just think the Raptors match up better with the Bucks. Well, and, and that's what I wanted to get. What before. I wanted to get to is that I think the Raptors have significantly more guys to throw at Giannis capably than the Bucks do at Kawhi. Yeah. Uh, um. But I wanted to talk about uh, the new apple of Bucks Twitter's eye. They do love their young players uh, when they show something, don't they? DJ Wilson is beginning to emerge he missed time early with a hamstring injury showed almost nothing last year uh, but uh, has played well been in the rotation uh, part of that was facilitated by ursa and Ilyasova suffering a, a broken nose he's at 46 percent from three shooting 4.7 three-point attempts per 36 minutes which is a, a, an enormous number but he's certainly a, a threat out there he does a lot of screening and operating inside the arc as well a little concerning that he's only eight out of 17 from the free throw line and i I watched most of his shots on the season and he has some really bad misses. A lot of times he's kind of got this long looping windup, which can be very inconsistent. It's hard for him to get his feet set as well when he tries to shoot a little bit more quickly. And so he'll have some misses where like it'll hit the backboard first. He banked in a shot, you know, so I, that 46%, if you wanted me to guess what percentage he's going to shoot the rest of the year, I would ballpark it at like 35, 36%. Um, he has been really good on the defensive glass, at least in terms of the number of rebounds that he's getting, 22% defensive rebounds. That's something that was considered a big weakness at, at Michigan. But it is worth noting a couple of things. Number one, obviously, is just if he's going to play with Brooke Lopez, which he doesn't play that many of his minutes with Lopez, I don't believe. But Lopez obviously is going to boost the defensive rebounding numbers of those around him. He's done that with Giannis. But also, this is something we probably should have talked about earlier. We talked ad nauseum about this Buck scheme where they basically are allowing the lowest number of shots in the restricted area that we've ever seen. And yeah, they give up a ton of threes. But part of why their defensive rebounding is now so much better is when you don't give up shots at the rim. Those are shots that get offensive rebounded much more often. I think it's close to 40% of shots at the rim get offensive rebounded because if you think about it, your rim protector is generally one of your best defensive rebounders. He's going to rotate, try to protect the rim. And if he forces a miss, now you're leaving the offensive glass open. You're you're more concerned about the crisis of a guy at the rim and there's, you're not really going to box out when somebody shoots a layup you know whereas on a jump shot you can find a man you can hit him and stay and you've also generally on a jump shot it's not going to be your big way out in the perimeter contesting that necessarily so that's a, a big reason why i think their defensive rebounding has increased even if they aren't 
better necessarily at defensive rebounding specific shots like or they are certainly but there's more to it than that in that they're just allowing different kinds of shots um but back to wilson what have been your overall impressions of him well i mean he's definitely a much better player in a lot of different facets than last year i mean the rebounding is a really big surprise for me i mean i just thought he looked kind of kind of soft and movable in summer league not only this year but last year as well he still is he still is but he's but he's better a little bit better and he does benefit from playing with guys that sometimes do not have the goal of rebounding the ball themselves they have it somewhere else also he's toned down his turnovers a lot which i think is is useful some of that is just being put in a more reasonable circumstance but like you i mean i'm a little bit skeptical of of the three-point shooting i mean 46 percent is ridiculous for almost everybody in the league but he not only is he making 46 percent of them he's taking 47 percent of his shots from three the good part about that is he's not taking many mid-rangers they are actually going in but again we're dealing with small sample size size theater there but something that's concerning for me with with him more so than for for isaac who has had a similar drop off but with a different sample is that i don't trust dj wilson finishing a ton around the rim i agree and so that you know kind of the idea of like what the theory of him as an offensive player you know maybe a low usage kind of not not quite like terrence ferguson but that idea of like that the best thing he does is space the floor that sort of an idea and then you know maybe he can do a little little yeah, something attacking and close i think he's a little more versatile than that personally a little bit but i you know it's kind of the the idea that you don't necessarily want him to do a whole lot more than that unless it's just like you know the two dribbles and a good decision type thing which i actually yeah. do like him doing i, he, right. I was something yeah. i like from him in michigan yeah, so I, I mean, I think he, I agree with you about, about his finishing. I think, you know, he's not going to quite go up and dunk on you. I mean, he, he'll go for some tip dunks every once in a while. He can get some, not like ridiculous alley-oops, but he can go up and get that on occasion. But yeah, any kind of contact around the rim, if there's, he'll go to some soft hooks as well um i was very impressed just with how he operates within the bucks offense you know pretty decent assist rate for a guy in his role 2.0 assists for 36 minutes and just see him make a, a lot of good decisions with the ball when he gets cut off he's able to find the right guy he's able to screen it and then pop out he's gotten some of his threes on a play where he'll screen for a guy coming out of the corner curling into the lane and then he'll pop out above the break for a three-pointer when he swung the ball up top I think he's able to make, you know, pass fakes. If the drive is there, he'll take that. He'll swing the ball to the right guy. I think he, he makes some pretty solid decisions defensively, like him much better against smaller players than bigger players. His length it has caused problems for guys if he's we haven't really seen him i, mean, I watched all of his iso possessions we haven't seen him really try to defend any smaller perimeter players who are are really big stars you know he's trying to like late clock against glenn robinson the 38 just completely swallowed that up um uh, he can poke at the ball too i mean that's something that players are taught to do a little bit more too to get the offensive player out of rhythm when he's trying to attack on a switch and then even if the guy does create some separation he's able to contest surprises guys with with his contest and his long arm so uh, i like that a lot uh but the physicality he's made some strides you might say but he, he's gonna get bullied so i mean trying to guard blake griffin just couldn't do it uh, even fronting the post on occasion i mean he's just gonna get pushed up the lane uh he had to foul zaza Pachulia twice when zaza was trying to post him up zaza not exactly the biggest post operator in the world uh when blake was able to make a catch on him he was able to go right through him they had to send emergency help most of the time 
uh, gets ducked in right at the charge circle very often. Again, just not much effort there, not much strength. Certainly a, a noodle uh, defensively at this point in time with his strength. So he's much better switching on to perimeter guys. But if you want him to guard someone with a, a little bit more strength, I mean, I think even if he had to switch on to like a Kawhi Leonard, you know, he, he might not even be strong enough to deal with something like that. He might be able to get knocked backwards and contest with his length a little bit. But, you know, I think... It, any guy with any kind of a post game and some size is going to hurt him down there. Something that I'm going to be interested in with Wilson moving forward is whether he ends up somebody more like I, I the guy that I'm thinking of here is Brandon Ingram, where he's so long that it might actually just work better against smaller guys because the advantage there is greater. So yeah, maybe yeah, he, he can't get through a screen though is the problem. That's true. But like in a switching system, hmm. Which they don't play. Which they don't play. But I, I, I'm kind of <laughs> uh, trying to piece together like what his ideal role would be. And that kind of something like a little bit fluid two through four might be the way to do it. Yeah. I mean, if, like if he got caught against like an Al Horford in the playoffs, like Horford would go right through him. Now, I mean, again, like the fact that he's shown some good minutes That he's here, been a rotation player for them is, yeah, is I, I, a massive that's strength. Solid. And yeah. you could see him maybe, you know, they'll try him in a couple of games in the playoffs and, and he'll make some energy plays and make a difference. But I think he's more, most games I wouldn't expect him to contribute very much in the in at least the last two rounds of the playoffs um all right let's move to miami here 22 and 22 three and three in their last six so they did uh, blow out the bulls over the weekend 0.1 net rating is 16th in the nba 22nd ranked offense seventh ranked defense as of now they project for 38 wins and a tie for the eighth seed 60 percent chance at the playoffs so have you had a chance to see much of Dion waiters uh, since he returned in these last seven games or so i i've seen some i i've watched you know i i I've watched the Heat in various moments, though I end up for whatever reason watching their starters more often than their than their backups. Uh, I, I bet I know the reason for that because they're playing in like some game that starts at four. Yes, that is that is probably why. And then sometimes when their game comes at halftime, that can be when other team when it comes back from halftime that that's when there's a stoppage. But yeah, waiters. I, I mean, what I've been surprised by is that physically he I think he looks closer to ready than I expected. You know, when a guy misses that long and comes back. I always think like, oh, they probably jumped it a little bit just because, you know, especially the Heat are competing for a playoff berth. But, you know, I I, I think that overall, you know, the flaws with Dion Waiters that I've seen, you know, like the jump, some, the jump shot wonkiness, him taking some absolutely abysmal stuff. That's not that, you know, that's Dion Waiters. That's not anything, anything particularly different other than maybe. And, and there, I, from what I've seen, there might be a little bit more to that, like something different here that he's not getting to the line enough. Yeah, that's never been a, a huge feature of his game. Always been around a 20% free throw rate. He's only taken five free throw attempts, though, uh, and he's over five uh, on free throws. Uh, overall statistics for him, 51% true shooting. Pretty close to where he's been statistically, around 25% usage. The only big difference is he's taking 57% of his shots from three and actually hitting better around the rim. He's usually been at 50% around the rim, 61% so far from two. Again, this is only 15.4 minutes a game, seven games. But just watching him, I think he's looked like about the same guy to me. And I think perhaps the fact that they brought him back so slowly and there's talk that they really needed to get him back in shape, I think that that has helped him to be able to come in and contribute. He's averaging 5.6 drives per game. You remember in that 16-17 season, 
that was the big engine he and Dragic driving and kicking setting up a three-pointers that he took a lot of threes uh, during that period so on those 5.6 drives a game takes only two field goal attempts out of those and averages an assist so you would imagine he's setting up at least another another shot there as well so on a per minute basis where he's only playing 15.4 minutes a game uh, that's pretty similar to where Josh Richardson and Winslow are, a little bit below Dragic. So he's providing an important role uh, of giving them uh, some penetration. I was impressed with his quickness, you know, especially going to his left. He's been able to create separation, get to the ring, he had a blow by on Malik Beasley in that Denver game. Beasley is a pretty decent, quick defender. That looked good. He was able to blow by Larry Markinen as well. He's not really, he's doing some pick and roll, but it's really most of his attacks have been when the ball gets swung to him with a slight advantage. He's able to widen that advantage or if the, the help is a little scrambled, he's able to get into the lane. Um, the three-pointer, 31%, you know, that's about kind of what you're expecting to be. Maybe he'll get up to 35%. He'll, he'll have some bad misses. He's taking some contested threes not as many contested twos uh, at least uh, which is good um it's just it's very hard for him to make the math work in terms of his own individual offense because he's not going to shoot an amazing percentage from three i mean he, he did in that one season but even then his true shooting was not very good uh, and then he's not going to get to the foul line and, and he's not shooting a good percentage at the foul line so granted only five attempts but i think he can still especially on a team like this that just desperately needs some floor raisers some guys who can create something you know i think he can be a if not a positive offensive player in a vacuum at least one who helps this group be a little bit better especially with Dragic out just by getting into the lane giving their offense some kind of an impetus even if he's not setting up the first play to kind of get the churn going and give them a little bit of something there do you want to talk a little bit about uh wayne ellington with this report that uh from barry jackson out of florida that uh, his agent mark bartlestein has talked to the heat with him basically out of the rotation yeah i mean so ellington i watched the game against detroit and he was basically an afterthought and that shouldn't really be a surprise even with Dragic being out because they're starting tyler johnson justice winslow magruder at the one two and three and then coming off the bench you have wade waiters Derek jones is ahead of ellington right now in the rotation and then that was even a game that Josh Richardson didn't play in. I forgot to mention him when I was talking about the rotation uh, because he didn't start that game. And so Ellington is pretty much an afterthought now. And that's unfortunate for him because he was, you know, a big positive last year and is only on a one-year contract. In an ideal world for Miami, if they're not going to play him, they would be able to unload Wayne Ellington because just so happens that his salary is almost identical to how far they are over the luxury tax. So if they could theoretically through a trade exception or cap space, it would be 129 dollars i think namad has it they'd be under the tax it's it's truly incredible and there are a couple of although if a linux doesn't make his uh bonus for i think it's 1700 minutes and he's not on track to do that right now uh, namad had a great piece about it he he hoops.com namad is the best um but well so what he pointed out here is that the teams who can take him back are the Hornets and not send back any salary. It's a lot of these teams have trade exceptions. The Hornets, the Nuggets, the Pistons, the Thunder, the Kings, who are actually under the cap, and the Wizards. But your problem there is some of those teams are even worse tax shape than the Heat are. A bunch of them are. I mean, the Wizards... 
and the Pistons in particular, those the Wizards are over, the Pistons are just under. I wouldn't expect them to take on the additional ramifications of him. The Nuggets, you know, they 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 theoretically could. They have all these trade exceptions. We'll talk about that when we do their their deadline preview. But I don't know that he's their biggest need. And then you you have all the stuff with the with the Hornets. I think they're too close to. They would have to send some stuff somewhere else or to Miami. And the Thunder, I I would say they're probably the best fit on the court because they could just use somebody like Wayne Ellington. But we know how much money their ownership is paying right now. And so to take him on would be a a, a far bigger undertaking for them than anyone else financially. Yeah, so if the Thunder just took him, that would add twenty one million to their tax bill, and then you know another probably two million still worth of, of his salary, a little bit more than that. So yeah, they're not going to do that. I think. I mean, I'd, I would start him if I were the Thunder. Frankly, I mean, he's he's not as good defensively as Ferguson, but I mean, he would be. I mean, the best shooter they've ever had, <laughs> like outside of Kevin Durant. Um. So I mean, there's a couple of constructions for a deal. I thought. I mean, I think the Pistons, the other team in there that could use him again. They have their own tax uh, tax issues, and and they've got Kennard. I mean, Wellington, uh, Ellington. I mean, they need someone who can hit a three to be sure. But you know, what are they going to give up that's going to entice the, the Heat here? The Thunder. One conception was maybe the Thunder could send Alex Abrines to the Kings and get Ellington. Heat get out of the tax. And then maybe the Thunder could entice the Kings in some manner, but probably also might need to give Miami something. I'm not sure that just dumping Ellington, especially because the rotations could change. They could have more injuries. You know, Wagers could get hurt again. I mean, Ellington, to me, is still a valuable player. I don't know why he would be any worse of a player than he was last year. He's a year older, but he had 227 threes last year. I mean, the guy was bombing. So that's one. I'm not sure that OKC, I mean, we've talked about how asset poor they are. You know, they do have Ferguson, they've got Diallo. I mean, those are probably their only real assets. I would say at this point in time, you know, they're out the two draft picks going forward, granted with some protections. Um, so, so that might be one. I'm not sure they could come up with enough stuff there to entice Sacramento uh, to take up Renas. Uh, Sacramento wouldn't really play a Renas, uh, I don't think. The other option would be just try to trade something to the heat and maybe have it more of a salary neutral trade for both teams but you know maybe you'd put say abrinas and diallo for ellington i mean what do you think of that trade is diallo worth that much i mean diallo is a heat type of player that's for sure yeah i so, mean the way he competes defensively they could they could get something out of him there and then the jump shot is the jump shot to be to be sure and diallo it's funny because that would actually be a move it, it would be the type of move that i would like to see presti do where you get somebody that's a little bit off your type to complement all of the other players like that's a weird parallel that okc and miami both have is that they have a front office that is very good at identifying a specific type of player they just have too damn many of those guys so maybe you know reshuffling that deck would be a little bit would be beneficial for oklahoma city as you said i think ellington could really help them but that's also not a deal i would expect to see sam presti make all right, we got to speed this up a little bit, but that's uh, so I apologize for you teams later in the alphabet, but this is why we do it in reverse alphabetical order sometimes to give the teams at the end of the alphabet some love. Let's turn to the Pacers and we'll talk about Charlotte at the same time as them since I watched uh, the game between those two teams today. 31 and 15, 5 and 2 since the last 15 and 60, 6.1 net rating is fourth in the NBA, 14th ranked offense, third in defense. They completely throttled the Hornets today projecting for 51 wins which should be fifth in the conference but certainly right right in there with boston and philly they will make the playoffs uh, you wanted to note uh, just something 
overall about this team before we talk a little bit about this game. Yeah, and Charlotte doesn't quite fit this description, but Indiana has really taken care of business against the bottom of the league. They only have one loss to one of those truly bad teams, and that was a one-point home loss to Cleveland in mid-December. I think I actually watched a portion of that game. I don't remember it particularly well. I think it was like maybe right, it was after the coaching change, but that's it. You know, one-point loss at home to Cleveland. They've really done a nice job taking care of business, and so that's how you, one of the ways you can get to 31 and 15, even if you lose some of those games like the, the aforementioned game where they got, I think they got pretty thoroughly outplayed by the Philadelphia 76ers. But the main thing I think that we wanted to talk about here is Victor Oladipo. Oladipo is not having as good a year offensively as last year, you know, all NBA caliber player, obviously most improved in the league. And there, there are a couple of different things, and I, I would classify this in kind of two directions. And so one of them is regression to the mean from some of the elements that he had last year. So last year, Oladipo, he was 36% on pull-up th- on pull-up threes. That I, I don't have the full numbers for his career, but I would guess that was a pretty significant outlier considering his overall stats in those and the role that he had. This year, that's down to 30%, and it's actually a higher proportion of his shots. Now, I don't think he's necessarily a 30% shooter on that, but the, the 36 was a little bit high. And then, so that that's kind of the one part is the regression of the mean. But then the other thing that I think is, is compelling here is that what I kind of think of as the aggressiveness numbers are significantly down as well. Yeah, th- that's getting to the rim, not happening as often. About 4% fewer of his shots are being taken at the rim he's making fewer shots at the rim and he was 69 percent last year 61 percent this year which is more in line with where he's been in his career he really struggled early in his career in orlando and not shooting as well from the foul line either so his true shooting percentage down from 58 to 52 and just recently he broke a streak of seven consecutive games of less than 20 points in garbage time he got up to 21 points against Charlotte, but he still only shot eight out of 20 in that game he was asked about it he said if i was injured i wouldn't be playing but to me just watching him and in this charlotte game again i mean they're just he's not the same guy athletically and whether that's just wear and tear or this knee issue that caused him to miss almost a month i mean he just was unguardable in pick and roll situations last year they would set the screen and he would just blow to the rim if there was a big who got out on the floor at all he would just get right past him and score i mean he was just breathtaking his crossovers the separation is creating the explosion at the rim just a lot of wow plays last year when you're like man how the hell do you stay in front of this guy this guy is so fast and you just we haven't seen that this year certainly not since he returned from the injury and so uh, i mean you you mentioned the statistical case for it just watching him i mean if you watch a pacers game he doesn't pop off the screen anymore athletically the way he did before and i'm not sure entirely what the reason for that is uh, but it is definitely quite true a few observations from their game against charlotte I thought the whole team was more aggressive uh, from three. It it is kind of interesting that outside of Golden State, I think the other four teams who are the top three-point shooting teams in the league are all in the 20s in terms of their three-point attempt rate. And I guess that would kind of make sense in theory, right? If you're taking fewer threes, the ones that you're taking are more open. I would be curious to know what the correlation is between three-point attempt rate and three-point percentage over time. That's probably something that uh, we should look at, although we can't ask Liam to do it anymore because he now is interning for the Oklahoma City Thunder. Thank you uh, for his service, and uh, we're congratulating him uh, on getting that. Glad that SBC and and dunked on, and to a far greater degree, just his own absolutely tireless efforts pounding the pavement uh, have paid off uh, for him there. 
but those are the kind of non sequiturs you get in hour two here of the 15 in 120. But anyway, I thought that a lot of guys just looked more aggressive to me than I had recalled it in this game. Thad Young has been taking more threes, especially above the break. Turner took a couple of deep ones. He had this big flurry late in the first quarter as Indiana really broke out to a lead that they weren't going to relinquish it. They won it pretty easily, 120 to 95, ultimately. And I think Charlotte got within six a couple of times, but it basically was not really in contact the whole game. Well, something on that note that I wanted to bring up with this one is that I thought Indiana's bench made a big difference. And Indiana has three key bench guys that they can use so well, so seamlessly with starters and mixed lineups or how really however they want to do it. And that's Sabonis, who's been awesome this year, Corey Joseph and Tyreek Evans. And Doug McDermott gets sprinkled in a little bit and they every once in a while TJ Leaf gets some gets some time. But they have just so much consistency and quality with all of those guys available. And so it it puts a lot, especially on I, I said how they don't lose many games to bad teams because they don't have those dips. And so, you know, there's some nights when Miles Turner doesn't have it or even when he had the shoulder issue and then they could bring Sabonis into the starting lineup. This, I, I thought this... they did really suffer when Turner was out. Oh, so do I. Think, I. I think yeah. that's, he's, he's been very good this year. Like, like his, his defense has really come along. It has. And I thought he made a made a pretty big difference in this game against, against Charlotte. And so the Pacers don't really let up. And, and especially when you consider like Corey Joseph, not in this game, because Darren Collison had some really nice stretches, but Corey Joseph has outplayed Collison in a, a, a meaningful portion of the games that I've watched. And so, and he's better defensively. So opponents just, they get different looks, but the Pacers are a pain in the ass to play whatever five is out there. Yeah. The Tyreek Evans has looked much better since uh, getting that PRP treatment in late December. And it, I thought Joseph, Young, Turner, Collison, all four of those guys were taking just a little bit more aggressive three-pointers than I recalled. I think that's generally a good thing for these guys. We can actually add a new term to the lexicon here, which is, I'm going to call it the TJ Leaf, which is when a young guy gets bench minutes in the first half because he's just a young guy that they want to try and give some minutes to. And then when they're actually trying to win the game in the second half, they don't play him. <laughs> so he got the TJ Leaf uh, in this game. Um, Quinn Buckner had a good point that we talked about on the NBA cast a, a couple of days ago, which is people have fallen in love with the idea of the foul to give and this being like a really smart play i think that when you're under five seconds the foul to give doesn't actually really help you unless they've really started their drive to the basket and have an advantage because a lot of times it's easier to just take the ball out of bounds inbound the ball to a spot without the clock moving until it gets touched and then it really set up a play whereas just right at the end of the quarter you're just running the time down you're going into an iso so why give the foul to give at that point? And so they they actually gave a foul to give with maybe about seven seconds left on the clock before anything had happened. And then they ended up fouling on the inbound and giving up a one-shot free throw before the ball had even got inbound. And then they gave up a corner three when Tyreek Evans helped off the strong side corner for no reason on a Tony Parker drive. And so the lead went from 12 to 8, but because they were playing really well, it didn't end up hurting them that much. Uh, and then Turner, I really, I thought his technique was interesting. He, on one play, he actually set a screen with his butt facing the defensive player. And that actually makes it easier. If you ever tried to roll to the basket as a big guy, like it can be a little bit disorienting because you are 
almost always going to lose sight of the ball handler or you're going to lose sight of where you're going right like you can do the Amari Stoudemire dive where he would set the screen facing the guy and then would just like go right to the basket and kind of look over his right or, or left shoulder whichever side was facing it and hope that Steve Nash is just going to put the ball in front of him which he very often did you can kind of get up more of a head of steam up going towards the basket but that's a that's difficult for a lot of guys the pass has got to be right on the money you're losing sight of the ball handler or you could try to keep the ball handler in your line of vision but then you're kind of spinning you're off balance a little bit and you don't know what you're turning into but if you set the screen with your butt then you can kind of both see where you're going and the ball handler as you start to roll to the rim uh just a thought it's kind of interesting i've talked with coaches about that uh, on occasion just like what the what technique they prefer and you know setting the screen with your butt it's not gonna be realistic all the time but it kind of gives you the best of both worlds when you're trying to roll to the rim uh okay i think that's it uh, on these guys let's talk about charlotte briefly here though yeah let's do their fundamentals first 22 and 24 three and four since the last 15 and 60 slightly positive net rating puts them 15th in the league 12th in offense 20th in defense 538 projects them to win 36 games which would be 10th in the eastern conference and gives them a 42 percent chance of making the playoffs part of that reason is because they have the hardest remaining schedule in the Eastern Conference after today's game. Their average their opponent winning percentage is 52%, which is, yeah, that's the best of any, of a, strongest, not best, strongest of any team in the Eastern Conference. And that's tough, especially because they're still doing with Cody Zeller being out for a while. And I, I, I'm of a couple of different minds with them. I thought I watched more of the game against Phoenix and you watched more of the game against Indy. They looked really good in the Phoenix game. Part of it, I want to give credit to James Borrego for running a lot of stuff that had multiple decisions and multiple actions and the Suns are just so bad at that that the Hornets were getting open looks either at the basket or from three on a a ridiculous proportion of possessions but then that sort of stuff doesn't work nearly as well against capable competition yeah and the Pacers were capable competition they really just could not get anything going around the rim Hernan Gomez had a pretty rough game defensively really wasn't able to to make an impact that's where but he was getting blocked around the rim as well I was surprised at how aggressive Michael K. Gilchrist was shooting three-pointers he took a couple I mean one of them was like kind of stepping back off a screen from above the break and then he hit a, a corner three with no hesitation that was that was good to see uh you know I don't think he's ever going to be a plus shooter out there but if he's going to improve his career, I mean, he went through like a three-year period where he basically made no development and kind of just stopped shooting threes at all. And now I think Borrego's like, hey, you're just going to going to have to. And we didn't even see that from him at the start of the year. They went to some of those lineups with him at center and Marvin Williams, their last-ditch attempt to get back into it, which failed, was actually with Kemba, Tony Parker, and Malik Monk with MKG and Marvin Williams. And they just ended up getting bludgeoned. They couldn't really create anything particularly – efficient there um the other thing i can point to uh, out of this game and i think part of the issue too is that he's playing a, a lot of minutes now with biombo who is just not an adequate role man in the way that cody zeller is zeller was quietly having a very good season but you really didn't feel kemba here and it, some research you did i mean he really has just been dropping off since that spectacular october yeah, it, it's a little bit concerning. So, I mean, October was ridiculous. 61 true shooting, 34% usage, which is, you know, way higher than last year. Last year, he had 27% usage. And then it's, you know, he kind of stabilized at about 56 true shooting in November and December. And that's, you know, a little bit worse than last year, but not significantly. But then so far in January, this was before today's game. And on Sunday, he was uh, 8 of 18 from the field. 
So we'll. Uh, I don't think it moves the number too far. But now for January, somewhere around 50% true shooting on the highest usage, all the way up to 34% for the month of January. Again, I think that's something we're not having Cody Zeller that's putting more on Kemba's shoulders. And I think that this is another kind of like Victor Oladipo where he wasn't, you know, the ridiculousness that we saw from Kemba early in the season was probably never going to go. And then something else is that there is a little bit of an inflection point still with Kemba's ankle sprain. But again, I think that might be a little bit more about just the regression that was always going to happen because of how amazing he was to start the season. Yeah, it's tough to say uh, where that is. I mean, but uh, I think teams have just uh, adjusted to some degree too, where they're going to say, hey, we're not going to give you, and the paces are awesome at getting over screens too, but they just say, hey, we're not going to give you that above the break uh, three point. We're going to make you drive. We're going to tire you out. And especially if he's not feeling quite as well physically, that's going to prove it more difficult for him. One other quick thing I wanted to talk about is that this is kind of a longer arcing story to discuss, but over the last couple of years, the Hornets have had gigantic differentials with Kemba on and off the floor. It's been over a 10 net rating drop each of the last two seasons, and it's actually close to even this year. And that is both a good thing and a bad thing. The good part about it is that their benches generally, you know, they had some rough times in this game against the Pacers, but generally their bench is playing better. But the other part of it that's contributing to lowering that discrepancy is that the Hornets have been worse in Kemba Walker's minutes. They've had a plus three net rating over the last couple of years, you know, plus three or so. And this year that's a little bit below even. They have a negative 0.3 net rating during Kemba's minutes before their game today. And a big part of that is that their defense has been significantly worse this year. As as much as we criticized Dwight Howard, I do think that he helped. And I mean, obviously, not having Cody Zeller now is, is another is another factor here. They've dealt with injuries and everything, just like so many other teams. But so basically, last year Charlotte was a top quarter offense and a middle of the road defense. This year in Kemba's minutes, they're an above average offense and almost a bottom quarter defense. And so that's why they're slightly negative net rating. Detroit is 20 and 25, have stabilized a, a little bit at 3 and 4 since the last 15 and 60. Negative 2.7 net rating is 22nd in the NBA, 24th ranked offense, 12th ranked defense, projecting for 37 wins and just slightly out of the playoffs behind those teams that are project for 38 wins and tied for 7th, but still 53% chance. At the playoffs, a bunch of these teams are kind of, you know, 60%, 50% type of playoff odds, and that's going to fluctuate on a, a daily basis. Andre Drummond did not play uh, against Sacramento, a, a game which Detroit led most of the way, and then Buddy Heald eviscerated them in the last quarter, specifically in the last couple of minutes hit a, a sweet pick and pop three where the Pistons miscommunicated at Kennard and Bullock, I believe it was, or, or no, I think it was, uh, might've been Reggie Jackson. Um, but he'll fake the screen popped out to the top of, of the key, uh, and it hit a three and then the game winner was just ridiculous after Zaza Pachulia crossed up Willie Cauley-Stein on a broken play and set up Blake Griffin, uh, to put them up to healed pump faked the pistons kind of weirdly deactivated and it seemed like they just didn't want to follow and he hit this crazy one foot runner but without much of a contest and that ended the game they're up to and ended up losing to buddy healed and sacramento by one 
We mentioned that Drummond did not play against Sacramento. He's kind of day-to-day with that concussion. And then concerning as well here, Ish Smith did not play against the Kings on Saturday. I thought at first maybe, oh, it's just oh, he's coming back from injury, and so they'll just rest him and bring him back slowly. But no, it was actually announced as right adductor tightness, and he's missed a bunch of time with the groin so far this season, and they desperately need him. I mean, the stats uh, when Jose Calderon plays more than like 10 minutes a game or something are just absolutely atrocious. Reggie Jackson, I mean, Smith would probably close a lot of games too if he were healthy. I mean, Reggie Jackson is just lost whatever dynamism he, he once had as a player so smith is probably actually crazily enough their best option at, at point guard and so uh they've really struggled without him and, and we'll remember this king's game i mean this is this that, that could be the game that puts them out of the playoffs uh, ultimately want to talk a little bit uh, about luke Kennard. Uh, what have your thoughts been just in general on him so far this season i still like the decision making that car gets into he's not not really a like a central offensive figure but one of those guys who when the opportunity presents itself he can move the ball create a little bit he is making 40 percent of his threes again was at 42 percent last year 40 percent this year on a higher attempt frequency which is which is good to see that's that's you know with a guy who can shoot you want them to shoot more and still below 20 usage he's at 18 point two overall some of that is is you know the role that he's playing and canard like a lot of those guys that can shoot and you know is capable with the ball in his hands but not really like dynamic you know he's not a, an amazing athlete he shoots a lot but then he doesn't get to the foul line doesn't get to the basket very often so that means he's reliant on making those threes which which he has so far but one thing that i find interesting with when you look at his synergy breakdown is that he has actually been more effective not as a not in terms of because in terms of ranking but he is actually scoring a higher points per possession as a ball handler both in pick and rolls and in handoffs than as a straight spot up shooter so far this season yeah that that's interesting and he is a a cagey pick and roll operator that that was part of the appeal not really setting guys up though and i think he's doesn't quite have the ability to get all the way to the rim and really put pressure on the basket shooting under 50 percent from two but taking more than half of his shots still as two pointers that's his three-point attempt rate has gone up a, a little bit and he absolutely never ever gets to the foul line defensively he's quite below average i think he he could make some smart help plays on occasion but i think saying that he's anything other than a below average defensive player would be unrealistic at this point in time the other thing is like yeah that 40 percent from three is great but he's not really enough of a bomber that it's causing much gravity other than just okay we're not going to leave this guy open in a help situation right i mean he's he's more of a passive shooter than an active shooter to where he's really creating the play and you know he doesn't have i mean i think what is obviously was compared to jj reddick coming out of school but one of the things that i think is totally underrated about jj is that jj is actually like pretty fast in a straight line it has is like a pretty decent stop start athlete and of course he's a tireless running off the ball as well and you know i'm not sure that canard is that and then i don't know that he has the versatility to his jump shot to really get it off quickly get it off on the move especially from three now he may get there obviously he's you know, this would, if you're going to compare him to Redick, this would have been his senior season at Duke. And then Redick didn't make an impact in the NBA for like three years after he was drafted. Uh, he, he's a, a rare player in a lot of regards, Redick is. So maybe not the best comparison. David Lockoy says, if your comparison for a guy is someone who is fairly unique, then that's not necessarily a great sign because that is a difficult path to follow to be a successful player. 
So Kennard still, to me, with his defensive limitations profiles is kind of more of a, a bench guy. I mean, he's going to really, he's going to have to be more than just a guy who makes some spot up shots and can kind of get in the lane and pick and roll every once in a while and shoot a floater. Uh, to fulfill what they hope would be his destiny as a starter you know i I know he's been starting some games uh nine out of his 27 games but to really think of him as all right this guy is the solution at this position i think he's got a long way to go and granted it's age 22 so he's got a little bit of time here but i'm not sure what there is to be that excited about it at this point in time with him i mean at least he's the ball's going in for him which for some of these shooters it just kind of never does you know like you run into that problem with Nick Stauskas, for example. So at least that part of it is going to happen. He's going to have a career because of that shooting ability. But can he either take more shots, really draw the defense to him, uh, uh, get some gravity? That's really going to be the question to me of whether he really succeeds. Yeah, that'll be a big part of it. I, I, I uh, Interesting that you brought up Stauskas. The guy that I was thinking of, just because I like Kennard's connective tissue a lot more, is Ben McElmore. Just with the idea that I, I just like Kennard way better as a basketball player than even as a prospect. I think I like him. He more. also can like have pushed the orange sphere into the ground and have it returned to his hand successfully. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but like, that, but, that's but something he adds. But so, but so, if you think about a guy, if he can continue to hit shots and and does that as you said i think he's an nba player but where he goes from the let's say 15 minute to 25 30 minute threshold is going to be a complicated question now there is serious scarcity at the two but he might end up being the type of player that you're happy to have on your team but you don't necessarily want to pay a lot of money like that type of guy and you know that's a good career i'm not, I'm not ever going to knock it and we'll have to see i want to see what what Kennard does from here there are some things in his game that i really like but it, again it's you know what what's the pop where's the the potential to become more than that type of player and you know i'm not super sold on that part of it right now Ah, uh, the Cavs, 9 oh. and 38, 1 and 6 in their last seven. That won a win at the Lakers. Uh, that is, I believe, their only win in like their last 13, I want to say. Negative 11.9 net rating is atrocious. That is 30th in the NBA, 23rd on offense somehow, and perhaps the worst defense in NBA history relative to league average right now at 118.6. That is 30th, projecting for 19 wins. Thankfully, a tie for 14th with the team we we're about to discuss. After them, they will not be making the playoffs. There's been a lot of talk with the the whole Kyrie calling LeBron and apologizing to him thing of well what if uh what if that Kyrie trade hadn't happened like what if he hadn't requested the trade then you know everything would be different in Cleveland they would have would have still had uh Kyrie in love and they'd still be a playoff team. Uh, I'm not so sure that's true. I mean, if you think about it. Number one, people might say, oh, like a healthy Cleveland team could have beaten the Warriors last year. I think that's probably not true. But, you know, Iguodala was out. The Warriors weren't as strong as they were two years ago. But Kyrie, I think, probably would have suffered that injury anyway. It wasn't really an acute thing. He was experiencing the irritation before he even got traded. Remember, he threatened to have that surgery, which there was a legitimate issue. And then just with the wear and tear of the season, that continued on and he had to be shut down in March. So I think it's probably more likely than not to me that that could have happened to him in Cleveland as well. And so I don't know that Cleveland would have been any better. 
in their ultimate destiny so if you think of where they would be assume lebron probably still leaves anyway i mean it seemed like a big part of why Kyrie left was because lebron wasn't going to commit it seemed like the writing uh, the more you hear about that situation it seems like the writing was on the wall far earlier as it is for many of these free agency decisions so you would have had Kyrie with one year left on his contract in cleveland let's say they don't trade him he doesn't do a trade request and would things have been that different for them i don't think that Kyrie would have evolved into the winning player that he has been in Boston in terms of playing better defense it just uh, I think he's increased his skill he's reached a, a new level under Brad Stevens that I don't think that that coaching would have happened to under Ty Lue. you know he just was not pushed to be that kind of player and so let's say Cleveland you know is kind of scraping around maybe they would have been the sixth seed at best probably i mean i don't see them being better considering uh, where they were even with the uh, Kyrie and, and love in the regular season and, and lebron in the regular season two years ago i think they probably would have been you know the sixth seed at best maybe they would have been out of the playoffs you know if love got injured again it would have been a struggle so is he really wanting to stick around at that point i mean i I don't see that like, oh yeah, they would have had him. It's like, no, he would have had one more year under contract. Maybe he even would have made the trade request that offseason after LeBron left. So I, I don't think that that Kyrie trade request really ended up changing Cleveland's formula that much and it's still it's not like you know they got isaiah and they got jay crowder who was supposed to be a little bit of a future asset and they got that number eight pick and who's to say whether they would have gotten a better or worse deal at this trade deadline or i mean probably would have gotten a worse deal because Kyrie would have wanted to go to contender and contenders wouldn't have had those kind of assets maybe they would have gotten a boston he could have gotten a boston so they could have gotten like Jalen brown or something but um i don't know do you agree with that I do mostly. The the crazy part about how it happened was that because what Cleveland got in the return ended up being so much less productive than we thought it was going to be, it's possible that Cleveland would have ended up with a better return, even though it was inferior, you know, in terms of con- conceptual value at the time, because, you know, Isaiah ended up being such a negative for them. And then Jay Crowder, you know, he's doing well for the Jazz now, but he was, wasn't super productive. And then the, the Nets pick was, you know, it was a lottery pick, but didn't end up being, you know, true top of the draft type of stuff. And well, Sexton's kind of a separate separate issue that i don't want to get into right now and so yeah, for we, we've been putting off the like super deep dive into sexton for so long yeah we're, we're not so many we're other not, guys I, i'm more interested in than him right now well, I, I mean we'll, the, we'll there's, a, there's another reason it. why i don't want to do it and um that's because yeah. i don't hey, want you never speaking of which you never actually did that like hate watching thing like, we, we had some we crap. never really firmly agreed on it. i mean hey if you want to make it a college sexton thing we can do it but uh, um what do you oh, we well we the bet itself and the consequences were agreed on that you would have to hate watch the player of my choice and like do a breakdown on him but i just have yeah. never actually you've never chosen actually that. chosen the player that was like over a year ago do you it remember was. what that bet was it was it was remember. dwight howard's next contract and it was because oh. of that <laughs> it was because of that like last year that he like didn't get guaranteed or something like that no 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 it was you were saying he would get over 100 million and he got 65 god that was yeah. from the summer of 2016 yeah uh Wow. We're not great. Anyway, well, I want to get back. So so I think the, the most interesting potential ripple effect from the Kyrie thing not, not happening is that I'm not sure Kevin Love gets an extension because basically it sounds like what happened with Love was he's the guy who wants to stay. And maybe if Kyrie demands a trade and gets and gets traded, then they don't do that. But maybe if it happens that soon, then Cleveland can do the youth movement. Maybe they even trade Kevin Love that same summer and really overhaul it then. And we don't know how big an albatross that contract's going to be. 
it become love is going to come back and he's going to be awesome and it'll look fine. But that's one yeah, thing. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Uh, I don't want to be, I don't want to go overly, you know, insanely negative with, with Cleveland at, at this juncture, though there's certainly plenty of material to you. But yeah, it's, I, I think you're right that it wouldn't have been as, as, as impactful because Cleveland ended up making the finals last year. You know, there, there were, Cleveland could have lost in the first round last year. Remember they went to the seventh game against the, against the Pacers. Pacers gave them a lot. Then the, the impact would have been much more pronounced. But in terms of the big picture, no, I mean, I think they win more in the finals than getting swept, but I don't think they win that series. So, you know, does winning five or six games matter more than winning zero? I mean, getting to a fifth or sixth game? Yeah, sure. I'm guessing it does. But yeah, and maybe Ty Lue gets another year coaching. Who knows? But yeah, I, I think that's... About it. Do you want to talk about the other thing that I proposed? Or do you want to save that for a future time? No, let's move on, man. We're we're like two hours in here. That's a fair uh, point. We, we got we got another really shitty team to talk about right now. Yes, we do. The Chicago Bulls are ten and thirty six. They are zero and six since the last fifteen and sixty. They, they they've are, lost ten straight too. Yeah, ten way. straight. Uh, they are just ahead of the Cavs, one point in net rating better, so that makes them twenty ninth in the league. Dead last in offense, twenty fourth in defense, and five thirty eight projects them to tie with the Cavs for 19 wins, which is not only tied for the bottom of the East, but tied for the bottom of the entire NBA. We could start this briefly with a quote from Zach Levine. Something's obviously wrong. We weren't losing by double digits earlier in the season. We might have been losing. They were. And we didn't even have a full roster. I don't know. We're a better team now. We're getting blown out. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. What, what's Is there something different about uh, this point in the season than earlier? Well, I mean, they have, a, they have a steering committee now, so it should be fine. I mean, that's different. Or steering. Leadership committee. Leadership committee. Sorry. My old politics instincts kicked back in. Um, But I wanted the thing, I and so we should also actually, before we get into the substantive thing, I want to discuss is the Michael Carter or sorry Wendell Carter Jr. issue so we had good news I talked about this I was excited last week that it didn't look like his injury was severe as severe instead when they got I guess they got another opinion Carter is going to undergo surgery on his left thumb probably on Monday he's going to miss 8 to 12 weeks that is depending on how they want to structure this pretty close to the rest of the season you know eight eight weeks is late march 12 weeks is the end of the regular season and i hope that we can do a more substantive breakdown on wendell carter at some point we're gonna we're gonna have plenty of things to talk about for or we're gonna need plenty of things to talk about with chicago's 1560s but the one basic thing i want to say there are two basic things one i still liked a lot of what he did on defense this year i thought that and and as a center that's significantly more important and then the other basic thing is that improving his shot proportions you know he he only took 40 percent of his shots at the rim and you know there's kind of a lot of weird like like kind of twos that could be cleaned yeah. up in there he's not a great finisher uh, right on the he, he yeah he's also not a great finisher on the rim yeah right but I, I think that improving his shot mix would help and i mean he was already close to 55 percent true shooting and so i think that there is a better offensive player in there than he showed this regular season i think we even saw some of that in summer league so that's all i really want to say for right now yeah, I mean, you have to imagine his season is over eight to twelve week timetable. You know that would put him back March twentieth at the early point of that, or around there. I guess it would be a little bit less. It's just it's been a little depressing, and and there are always going to be injury excuses. It seems like in Chicago there are now maybe coaching excuses as well. I mean the the defense has regressed to the point where um the point was made to me that maybe the reason the defense was so good with Boylan early on was just not playing Jabari Parker and not playing Levine as much because Levine had that ankle injury and that's why they were defending but I mean I think to be 30th in offense Levine has been healthy most of the year Carter is a foundational piece 
he's been healthy all year until now Lowry Markinen offensive rating with him on the floor 98.2 negative 13.8 net rating for Lowry Markinen and he, he did have some comments in the Finnish media that the elbow doesn't feel like it's 100 percent, but he's just been shooting it well from three it's just been the two pointers that have been completely off and then another guy who this is one that I was really concerned about before the start of the year was Chris Dunn and Dunn now has played 20 games he has taken 28 three-point attempts so basically one three-point attempt per game that's just not going to cut it from your starting point guard the guy you have the ball in his hands running pick and roll you're gonna try and let zach levine get to the basket and operate he if dunn is not a threat off the ball he's just not it's not good enough for him to play with levine and he's always struggled to finish it at the rim only taken 33 free throw attempts in 20 games as well so it's going to be extremely difficult for him to be efficient with no threes and no free throws and not getting in the room that much and not finishing at the room that much he does have a career high 49 percent true shooting but i mean this guy was supposed to be this great athlete getting to the rim and his career free throw rate is 17 percent. you know that is way way below average he has shown some decent vision uh usage is at least down a little bit which was probably good but he's just taking a lot of mid-rangers and not really making that many of them uh i mean i guess he's a good defensive point guard but they still haven't been able to stop anybody when he's uh, been out there 114 defensive rating negative 14.4 net rating and these these guys on this team just aren't that good uh, the larry Markinen, i guess is the their best prospect levine looked like he might be emerging to a new level that obviously uh, has fallen off again with the, the caveat that it's very difficult to run him i mean they got chandler hutchison uh, at the three i mean he's not a huge threat from downtown currently shooting 29 percent from three and oh 1.9 three-point attempts per 36 minutes for chandler hutchinson <laughs> that's atrocious so so now you've got your starting three and your starting one both under two three-point attempts for 36 minutes i don't care if larry markin is a great shooter or not like you can't have your one and your three not shooting threes at all and not hitting threes at all like yeah of course you're gonna suck on, on offense and, and that gets in like Archidiakno and Shaq Harrison. I mean, those guys like can't create any kind of shots. I mean, Archidiakno can hit a wide open three, but uh, outside of that, you know, he's he's a wallflower offensively. And the, the team is just bad. They don't have the personnel, even when healthy. And that's really the the point that I want. We don't need to dwell on it. That I want to mention is I can't for the life of me figure out without you know adding somebody way over the top of these guys what the this collection of players would really dominate in from a four factors perspective so you can talk on either end of the floor they're going to be maybe they can generate turnovers i think you you could see that just (laughs) like maybe like maybe Uh, they could do that but you know i mean who's gonna do that just chris dunn is the only guy no just like like... zach levine just leaving his guy and trying to get steals you know like the monte ellis brand of steals not the victor Uh, oladipo paul george brand of steals and I think you could see something like that. Also, I could see Wendell Carter becoming a good steals guy later on because I could see him deflecting entry passes and things like that. But offensively, you know, you're not sitting there going, oh man, they're going to get to the foul line a ton or they're going to have a really high effective field goal percentage because their shot mix is so healthy or, you know, like all those type of like, I can't figure out a calling card. And for me, if I can't figure out a calling card, then that means that you're probably not going to be very good in anything because you want to have multiple options because something's probably not going to work out. And they've already paid Levine. 
so that that part of it isn't great. And I, I just feel like my big concern is that maybe the the Bulls will be helped by just nobody saying yes, but that they're, you know, they have a lot of money out there, you know, the stuff with Felicio and everything else. And I think they're a long, long way away. I mean, I think their number one thing that they need to address is point guard. Now, are they going to get a veteran point guard in free agency this year? Are they going to really break the bank for, you know, say an Eric Bledsoe type of guy? And that's probably the number one thing that they realistically could do to improve. And they're going to need something at backup center now with Lopez likely on the move. He's going to start for the time being, but you have to imagine that he'll be gone by a buyout if nothing else although they will no doubt extract their pound of flesh in terms of his salary. I guess that's enough on these guys. We got plenty of time to talk about the future for them uh, because we won't be spending too much time on their present the rest of the season, I would guess. Yeah, Yeah. the Nets are above 500. They're 24 and 23, thanks to a four and one push since the last time we covered them. Slight negative net rating, which puts them 20th in the league, 14th in offense, uh, still a little bit behind 22nd in defense. 538 projects them to win 39, which would be sixth in the conference, 77% playoff odds, which is strong. And a couple of, uh, uh, of good pieces of news. Well, the, we'll start with the good one, actually. Karis Silvert is doing on-court work now. Not live five-on-five, five, but on-court work. That's that's a great step. I mean, if he can be even ready for, let's say, like, I, I would be thrilled if he could play in March. Like, if he could get to that point. Yeah. It seems sounds... like after the All-Star break might yeah. be a, a reasonable target there. And they've gotten great contributions in his stead. I thought that was going to sink their season. It absolutely has not. And so that's, that's wonderful. Unfortunately, Jared Dudley will miss his fourth game on Monday due to his hamstring issue. And John Shubin has done some really, really good work, kind of stats-based stuff on the Nets, which I think is worth discussing. One thing that he pointed out, which has been a, a stark difference, and I mean, we were cracking jokes because of how they did last year, that the Nets were truly awful in close games. Not necessarily, I, I mean, there was some bad execution too, but they were just just kept on losing close games like the Hornets. And they were 4-12. and And then after December 6th, they are now 10-2 and in close games. They play a lot of close games. And so that swing is really important. And part of it is that they have two guards that have been very successful in those clutch situations. Yeah. After Dinwiddie's just absolutely preposterous game in Houston last Wednesday night, he is six for 14 and four of nine on threes on shots to tie or take the lead in the final minute of the fourth quarter or overtime. In that game, I think they trailed by 16 with under five minutes to go in Houston. They were down nine with under two minutes to go and Dinwiddie just absolutely went off and here's a little bit of advice again for the daily fantasy types if the team that Brooklyn is going against plays conventional pick and roll defense D'Angelo Russell is a good option if they switch a little bit more they go especially at the end of a game they go smaller Dinwiddie is going to be your guy because Russell can't beat a switch Dinwiddie is really their only guy with this group that they go to it and so I mean he's got to create a lot of shots it can look like he's being a little selfish at the end of games sometimes but that's he's the only who else is going to create a, a shot in those situations and you know he definitely had a, an incredible game uh, some uh, big assists as well I think they were down seven in the overtime and he brought them back again as well. Hit a ridiculous three-pointer to tie it at the end of regulation. He's got very, very deep range. So uh, he's been fantastic. We, you know, that we have liked uh, that contract. Um, D'Angelo Russell, still a, a solid pick and roll operator, but again, the just so reliant on his jump shot going in. 15% of his shots in the restricted area. 
that is 148th out of 160 players with over 300 field goal attempts that's per our, our buddy john schumann and his free throw attempt rate is 155th out of 160 players with 300 plus field goal attempts so again that jump shot better go in or he's going to have uh, some ugly looking games uh what does it look like for them uh, the rest of the season here well so overall because people have been talking about how tough their schedule is overall they're they have the eighth hardest schedule so that is second behind charlotte of in terms of difficulty in the eastern conference but the reason why they need to run up the score right now is that in the final month of the season every single game the nets play is against the team currently in the playoff picture with a lot of games against the top teams and it gets even stronger towards the end of the season in the last two weeks of the year they play all of those top five teams in the east at least once i think they play at least one uh, one of them twice and so right now that looks really bad for them now it could end up being a little bit mitigated if some of those races clarify between now and then we have no idea if it will but that could help brooklyn depending you know like let's say either milwaukee or toronto you know one of them settles their seed before the last week of the season maybe maybe they're not pushing as hard as brooklyn is or something like that but overall they're playing really strong teams now the nets can play good teams well but that's a lot to take on and so they need to take care of business now and maybe it will they'll benefit from a jolt getting carousel vert back maybe they'll benefit from just one or two of the teams that are also in this mix falling off due to injury or just not being that good i certainly think we could see that from at least one of them so i think that the nets are in they're in a pretty good place they they do need to to run up the score over the next let's say month or so just win win the games that they they need to win you know like all the games against bad teams and then and and their home games against decent teams and then be competitive you know maybe steal a houston-esque win or like they beat they beat boston in that game that was that was a nice win they had they won by seven uh early in this past week so if they can do that kind of stuff i think they'll be okay because the bottom of the east sucks but they are going to need to take care of business soon the top of the east doesn't suck as much that includes the boston celtics at only 28 and 18 four and three since we last checked in on them 6.1 net rating is however third in the nba they actually have a better net rating than toronto but have been far unluckier which is a surprise considering how good they were in clutch situations last year an indication that perhaps uh that is luck well Even when you have a great sort of yeah boston has the second best net rating in the clutch net rating in the league they're plus 25 in clutch situations it's just that they they have that hasn't converted into a ridiculous win percentage well so so that's even that's even more unlucky right like that's i mean i guess that's, yeah that's, like, that's like a fair if point you're, if you're not only do you have an overall clutch uh, overall net rating but then your clutch net rating is really good but yet you still uh, have a, a bad record uh could also mean too that they are going into those games in the clutch maybe just starting off a little bit you know lower than the median team you know maybe they're it's classified as clutch but like they're starting all those games down five or whatever um but they still project for 52 wins they will make the playoffs and i think one thing to note about that 28 and 18 record they are 14 and 10 against teams with losing records so that means they are they're 14 and 8 against teams with winning records and that to me just seems a little bit more salient now sometimes those numbers or home road splits or whatever can just be random noise but i think they've just when they've played against good teams and i'll also admit that i've watched a lot more of their games against good teams than against bad teams that's just kind of how it works a lot of times so maybe that's why i have an inflated impression of them but 
I'm not anywhere close to giving up on these guys. I mean, I'm not sure that I would favor them over Toronto or Milwaukee, but by no means would I say that they wouldn't have a chance in those two. I think they have a very good chance. Uh, I mean, Kyrie Irving has just been so unstoppable, just as he was in that Toronto game. I think you could see a lot of the games in the series going exactly the way the two games in Boston Garden did for the Boston-Toronto series. Um, Anything else you want to get in on these guys? Yeah, Well, something I want to mention is that they also absolutely trucked the Pacers. I remember watching that game. I think it was like a week and a half. Yeah, that was the San Miles Turner game. Yes, that was. But and, and you know, and that that is certainly a consideration there. One other quick thing I want to mention before we get into the game against the Hawks, which was really really fun, is a ripple. You know, like a, a potential effect of that game is Marcus Smart potentially missing some time. I have not heard anything about a suspension, but typically, if a player has already been ejected and is basically supposed to be making his way off the court, and then after that goes after another player and has to be pulled back by like he, he took an a army. swing at him too I don't and think took it, a swing i don't think yeah. it is gonna happen but i i would uh i think he's gonna get a crazy, game yeah i mean maybe and, and you know one game if, it, if that's all it is then that's not a huge deal for the celtics they play miami on monday so most people will probably know know what's going to happen there by the time they listen to this but the other quick thing before we get to that game is boston sixth in offensive rating and fifth in net rating since december 1st and i'm still a you know i'm not a believer that they have like the best offense in the league or anything but i think that's more reflective of what they are than what they were at the beginning of the season when their defense was completely bonkers and their offense was like league average i think that this is and you know a plus seven nine net rating is ridiculous like that's a really really good team and that's what they are to me yeah i'm in agreement i think that these guys are are really solid i'm not at all writing off the possibility that they could win the conference and Kyrie has been an absolute tear lately he lit up uh, the hawks yesterday for 32 points uh, on 11 and 19 five of eight from downtown and i think as much as his handle and his wizard finishing gets talked about i think the biggest aspect of his game that's so impressive is just what an awesome shooter he is i mean he just like takes extremely difficult three pointers off the drill i mean going to his right from three it's like automatic at this point in time i'm surprised we actually haven't seen more teams guard him the way clay thompson and the warriors used to guard him which was you know almost the opposite of james harden forcing him to go left because he's really enjoys shooting that jump shot going to his right i mean that was the shot that he hit over steph curry obviously in game seven of the finals now Kyrie didn't start this game well he actually missed three pretty easy layups in, in the first quarter and then he just passed out of another one that was a flaming bag that he threw to tice who somehow had a three a three-pointer the Celtics just coming off the back-to-back. Hayward didn't play in this one due to a personal issue. He's supposed to be back potentially uh, on Martin Luther King Day in Miami. And so uh, the defense was not good. The Hawks lit them up for... 36 points in the first 67 in the first half after the Hawks really did well and we'll we'll break into some Hawks talk a a little bit too as we go on and once again Atlanta was killing Boston the first half with this double drag action where they set sometimes they even run it not even in transition as a just off of a dead ball with Trey Young or Jeremy Lin coming off a, a double screen and then the center either rolling to the basket or then screening for the other screener who is usually a shooter you know a Vince Carter type sometimes it would pop out and boston couldn't stop that and so what brad stevens started doing was actually going to a zone when they whenever they got into that alignment so he would just put two guards up at the top 
to deal with either the the ball handler and then whoever ended up popping out and then just leave the center back to deal with the roll man and that actually worked really well took them out of that hawks had to go into more conventional offense also boston started playing much harder smart first got kind of pissed off and and made a couple of big effort plays and then when he got thrown out i think that really energized the team and they ended up holding boston to only 38 points in the second half in a 113 105 victory and Kyrie, of course uh, was awesome down the end i did note however that while the offense as you noted has been better it doesn't have the same type of flow that you'll see from the teams that really move the ball and certainly not the same type of flow that they had two years ago when isaiah thomas was doing all that dho stuff it guys just kind of every time someone catches the ball it's kind of like okay now he's got to wait for the screen the screen isn't there the decision is not made immediately and then you know maybe once the initial penetration happens they'll move the ball and then they can start moving it more quickly but they just don't have a lot of natural quick ball movers on this team and their execution just isn't as good to me they're when they swing the ball from side to side it's like the step up screen isn't there right away as soon as the ball gets swung it's okay wait now i'm gonna wave you up you come out here you know as we're gonna run our next thing every every time they align for a play it's like okay everyone stands there for three seconds before you start the play is everyone in position okay can we go now all right we're gonna go and so it just has not had the flow that we've seen from brad stevens teams in the past it was just a little bit disappointing but they've been more effective Kyrie irving obviously is turning into one of those guys who makes it an efficient offense by himself here anything you wanted to say on them before we turn to atlanta no let's jump to the hawks i'll do their fundamentals quick before we forget 14 and 31 two and four since the last 15 and 60 they are still 28th in net rating negative 9.3 29th in offense 27th in defense project to win 26 which would be 12th in the eastern conference i believe it would be the fifth worst record overall and they're not going to make the playoffs so there are a couple of really interesting takeaways for the atlanta hawks over their last little while i think the biggest inflection point of their season so far is getting john collins back not only because john collins has been a very productive player for them but because john collins is replacing very unproductive players and so they've looked so much more offensively and defensively despite playing overwhelmingly young players they've looked like a more cohesive understandable team yeah i think so and i mean that boston is a good defense okc is a good defense like they've despite their miserable overall offensive ranking as mentioned 29th in the nba they've had some moments where they've really have looked a lot better now so much of that relies on trey young he is very very turnover prone uh, it's really funny because they kick the ball away so much i mean they are last in turnovers still by a huge margin but since collins returned and when collins is on the floor their offensive rebounding is awesome 33 percent offensive rebounding. i mean i think it's probably been at least 10 years i would guess until since we've seen that rate of offensive rebounding over a full season and even when collins is at center is pretty good but you know we've said hey we want to see collins at center more will you pair him with the another big and he's a really good rebounder there and they also still take a ton of shots at the rim even though they miss a lot of them so they're able to get more offense real so that'll be really interesting to monitor whether that keeps up so they kick the ball away on turnovers but they get a lot of extra possessions on the offensive glass and then collins is a, a pretty nice finisher on those plays as well you know it's not kind of the danny fortson all right i got the rebound and now i can't do anything with it when collins is involved um 
going back to this game with Atlanta, they're not starting, or with Boston, I should say, they're still not starting Torian Prince. And he had a massive struggle in this one. What Boston tried to do to deal with that Hawks pick and roll action a lot was to just bring a guy over from the weak side, usually the left side, and Prince was wide open for three a number of times in the first half, just could not make him. And he, and he doesn't look as comfortable athletically. I mean, remember he had a pretty severe ankle sprain that cost him more than a month, I believe. And uh, ultimately, uh, the Hawks started missing threes, finished at 29%. It didn't get nearly as many shots in the second half. They shot it well in the first half. Young finished at six out of 17 with six turnovers. And he still makes some absolutely brilliant passes. He'll just sometimes, and I thought he showed some nice things. Like he actually beat Marcus Smart off the dribble a couple of times. Smart was having a pretty low energy game in the first half. And then he uh, had about five possessions where he was really angry. And then he got so angry that he got himself thrown out. Um, so that was good. But there's also plays where he just gets overwhelmed physically. I think he started to have an idea that he needs to shoot more with his left hand going left. But he had one play where he just got blocked on ball by Trey Rozier, who was guarding him. And then he had another chance, I think, to, to shoot where he was open. And Rozier was kind of in the vicinity. He passed it up. So, I mean, there's just plays where he's still learning at his size what he can and can't do as far as getting his shot off and there's times when he just doesn't understand and gets it packed back in his face in really embarrassing fashion Amari Spellman has actually looked much better as the new most baits he's blocking a few shots there's the talk that he wasn't playing because he was too fat and he does look a little bit slimmer and so it's not like totally ridiculous that they're playing him anymore the way it was early in the season they just didn't have anyone else you mentioned Collins it's interesting that they are keeping the minutes pretty down for him you know he wasn't really in that bad of foul trouble he's been kind of around 30 minutes most of the season and maybe they feel like they just need to keep his energy up get him playing harder i did notice that he actually was contesting more at the rim now he's still not great at verticality he'll kind of turn his body into the guys get foul calls but he's at least jumping and he's at least trying to make plays there which earlier in the season i think the last time i saw them he wasn't really moving on those plays um kevin herter had some really nice moments in this one like step back three going to his right after he hit a couple of big threes from like way deep off the dribble he had one play where he drove went behind his back and and got an ooh from the crowd as he stepped back to the free throw line and, and eluded its defender i think that might have been uh like smart or jalen brown somebody pretty good because pretty much everyone on boston is so i mean he's coming right along he's he's looked pretty good he led the team in scoring uh, with 18 points uh, in this game and collins is shooting better from three two he's been more aggressive out there i think he's over 40 percent in the last month or so after a tough start right when he came back from injury one other thing i want to mention briefly he has had a better season so far than i expected but i think bembry is miscast as a starter you know it, it is really and a starting stop. three for that matter. oh yeah starting three for that matter i mean so ideally prince will recover well enough to to take that spot and then young herder prince collins deadman assuming deadman is still on the team could be len will, will be a a more capable starting five you know i think that that can hopefully go in a different direction but Bembry, you know I, I am happy that he's having the best season of his young career this is his age 24 season i think he's older than some people remember and he will be he, he got his option picked up so next year will be his fourth year last one on the rookie scale contract but you know playing him you know about 30 minutes i think is what he played in this one that's you know that's too much for, that's too much Bembry. and he, he i actually could be intrigued with him as a you know kind of like a capable player off the bench he's not running the show but he can be a a part of the good things that happen and maybe the hawks get good enough if they can add you know they're probably gonna have two lottery picks this year they can add enough maybe a free agent or two that he can slide into the right role before they have to figure out whether they want to pay him or not yeah and Bebry, i mean he's their best defensive player on the perimeter i think it's probably not particularly close with baysmore out it'll be interesting to see how they 
work Bazemore back in here hawks university is still in operation with Dwayne deadman by the way he's taking some difficult threes as well he's now 36 percent from downtown he's already taken 103 three-point attempts this season that's pretty impressive and his being able to at least hang out in the corner and space the floor I mean, he's even taking some above the break threes at this point as well uh oh can i make one broad yeah. broad scope thing so there is a very tentative parallel to brooklyn's offense in 2016-17 when former hawks assistant kenny atkinson got to brooklyn in that the hawks are taking shots in exactly the right places super high rim frequency corner threes threes overall not taking a ton of mid-rangers but they're not going in you know they're 22nd in effective field goal percentage i think a lot of that is just that they don't have good enough players yet and so we've seen brooklyn you know as their talent has improved that has helped and i mean if they also don't kick the ball around the freaking gym anymore that would really help as well like they're they they can there's there's potential in this and i mean obviously trey young we hope will be significantly better over time as most young point guards are so i want to kind of keep an eye on that and see if taking the shots in the right place eventually starts really bearing some fruit later on especially because i would guess that the hawks are going to have a lot of these same players especially in on the perimeter when they get better whenever that is well, one thing I want to keep an eye on here is the time. We are done. Nice long marathon session for you. As usual on the East 15 and 60, join us for the NBA cast tomorrow at 8 Eastern. YouTube, just Google YouTube, Nate Duncan. You'll find it. You can actually pause and sync up if you're a streamer watching internationally or just watching on some kind of streaming system here in the U.S. and not on live tv but you can also just pause your dvr if you are watching it on live tv as well you can follow on twitch we've got these overlays now that are really cool with advanced stats we're doing a twitter list of the game that's involved on the broadcast as well so now if you're you don't even have to miss out on your twitter experience you can get tweets about the game as you're joining us so please do that anything you need to talk about before we go uh, if people haven't heard it, I did a Real Jam Radio full NBA Tears podcast with Matt Moore that came out, I think, on Friday. That was really fun. I had a, a I have a piece coming out on Monday morning talking about the early trade deadline and how the how it might affect the buyers and sellers, just that we might not have many sellers because teams think they're still in it. And so that could end up being a problem. You know, the the challenges of moving the deadline up as as denial denial ain't just a river in Egypt. It it certainly is not this year. And so I have I have a piece on that coming out. Uh for people who haven't read it, we did a fun Demarcus Cousins roundtable at the Athletic. That's worth 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 checking out. And yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to have a mix of the free agency twenty nineteen offseason preview stuff and then of course trade deadline work and Maybe at some point we'll actually have some trades, but you and I are going to talk about what might be coming down the pike as well. Yeah, and uh, we're a little more than a week away from the mock off or no mock trade deadline podcast. I should say. I'm going to stop talking now. We'll talk to y'all tomorrow. (laughs) 